0: Hello everybody. Today, Maya, namaste, <laughs> <laughs> fellow yogi is in here and we are all smiles right now but it, we're going to go to some places that are quite harrowing so just a disclaimer. Ash has spoke to Maya for hours and he did warn me on the phone that similar graphic content to the Darren Jeffrey story that many of you saw on the channel, so obviously our mission statement is, you know, end the war on drugs, take all those resources, two trillion spent in America, God knows how much spent in this country, and go after the predators, stop throwing young people in jails for low-level drug offenses, I'm not talking about traffickers, but from my experience, I saw jails full of low-level people with addiction issues, end all that take all that money and put the predators behind bars. And I'm not talking little slaps on the wrist either, where they just get two years and five years and they bring these high-priced lawyers in, like we see with the Catholic priests. Talking proper, big sentences, because when someone gets out after two years and gets on with their life, how does that make the victim feel? The victim has gone through these things that they're carrying for the rest of their lives. It's completely unjust for these guys to be getting passes for these horrendous crimes. And the whole ju- justice system seems to be absolutely upside down. And if you're not part of our mission statement, if you don't feel that is correct, then perhaps Maya here is going to help you change your mind. So, thank you so much for coming on. You're welcome.
1: Thank you for having me. You're
0: welcome as well. (laughs) um, Please tell us then just what life was like for you as a kid growing up.
1: Where do you want me to start?
0: What part of the country?
1: Okay, Essex. Proper Essex girl. (laughs) Proud Essex girl, despite not being living in Essex constantly, but very proud Essex girl. Um, Yeah, and just your typical Essex girl, I guess. Um,
0: And how did your parents meet?
1: Uh that was I th- I, can't, I don't know the ins and outs of how they met but I know that my father was serving in the army so he was working in the army and um, for some for quite some time that's as much as I've probably ever really known about the history between them both
0: And what years are we talking about when he was in the army
1: Um no I think it was around 1970s 1970s he was 1973 um, and I was born around ninety. I was born nineteen eighty three.
0: So. Nineteen eighty three. Yeah. Right. So, what was it like in school for you?
1: Ah, uh, school was okay. I was there. I survived, but it was it was just a place. Yeah. Um, but it was actually a place of safety. School was. Yeah. It was hard.
0: And did you find it easy to make friends?
1: No. I'm in the outfitter. I've always called myself the outfitter. And what do you mean by that? <laughs> I just don't fit. But I think when you've come from a background of so much trauma, you never know who you are anyway, because you don't know your own identity. So I think that that's a lot of it.
0: Were you able to make friends with other kids, perhaps, who'd been through stuff or who were being left out of the main social groups?
1: No. I was always trying to be the cool kid. Right. I was always trying to be the hard nut. Um, the girl that, you know, would protect everybody. I was a bit of a fighter at the time.
0: So you were sticking up for people who get getting bullied.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah. I came from a background of violence in, in my household. You know, the, the way that you survive is you fight. Yeah. You know, that, that's how you get anywhere in life is you're aggressive and you fight.
0: When did the violence first begin in your household?
1: From, from the backstory from the police, um, around four years old.
0: And was that violence, like, your dad beating up your mum or your dad hit picking upon you, or
1: That was child sexual abuse.
0: <sighs> okay, so yeah. what was it you could first remember then about things?
1: Do you know what, Sean? I think over these last few years since his release from prison, I've been able to piece a lot more together. Um, and obviously my story is very different in the sense that my child sexual abuse started very early. And I can remember certain bits of it, things like um, being always waking up downstairs with the cartoons on and my father down by beside me, um, hushing and that kind of thing. Um, and I think as I got older, I blocked it out. And actually, as the police would um, would sit and say to me, is it just become a normal part of my life? It was so normal that you know there was times where I was being sexually abused and I'm eating food or taking a phone call from a mate at school it was it was that normal um that yeah the body the body was there and the mind was just completely somewhere else
0: okay so how long did it take then for the police to get involved
1: well so my story is um long story short is
0: well, we, we, okay so we don't want people to do long story short <laughs> Uh, On this channel, we've okay. got hours to fill. Okay. <laughs> so, so we like to keep long stories long. Yeah, I
1: mean, I'll, I'll work backwards, actually. Okay. Because I think working, trying to trying to address it from a child has always been extremely complicated. Yeah. Because the whole story is so complicated. Okay. Um,
0: However you want to go with I time I work order, backwards. Go backwards. Then. So I
1: work from when I got the phone call in 2011. So... We're talking, what, 10 years ago, 11 years ago now. So in 2011, I was on holiday. Well, actually, I was visiting my husband's family. So, and I'd had my first child. And that's when I got the phone call from the police. So I'm on holiday. Um, my, so the story is my father stayed in my life, despite he was my offender. He was my sexual abuse offender. And it's to the point where I kind of lived a double life. So I hated him. But at the same time, I wanted the happy ever after. I can have a normal life and I can have the fairy tale. And so I kept him in my life. Um, And then in 2005, 2006, we all went on a family holiday um, to Egypt for, for New Year. And... It was a holiday romance. I fell in love with this, the guy that was working in the, in the hotel.
0: Who all was on this holiday with you?
1: So that was me, um, my auntie, my mum and my dad.
0: Okay, and I know we're going backwards, but was your mum and your auntie aware of what had happened?
1: Nobody. I say nobody was as far as I was concerned, although family members had suspicion of his, his character. I mean, he was very well-known, um, very violent, always fighting with local, you know, areas, um, lots of history, very protective, always people saying, that, that guy's not right. Um, growing up throughout school, mates would be, you know, he, he was well-known in the sense, oh, your dad's around the corner stalking you, the dad in the white van, because he was a builder. Um, so he was, he was well-known. So I'd never disclosed my child's sexual abuse, at all to, to anybody as far as I'm consciously aware maybe some, you know in different parts of growing up people got suspicious. um so I kept this kind of like family dynamic but at the same time always being very aware of the relationship between him and I and that he is he is you know sexually abusing me and was my offender um so, in, yeah, so in 2006, we went on holiday. It was a family holiday, and I fell in love with who now my husband. And for me at that moment of time, you know, I was, I was my late teens. My father, in my head, had stopped sexually abusing me, but he was a serial stalker. Of you? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like, when I, was, when I hit my teens... I moved out of home around fifteen. Very quickly, moved out of home. Started um, house sharing with mates. But he—he was known as. Everybody would be like, "Oh, your dad's sitting outside stalking us again. Your dad's outside stalking us again." My
0: goodness, I've never heard anything like this.
1: Yeah, and everybody knew him—the white van man. White van man? Yeah. You were
0: joking? No. That was just like not a movie.
1: No, and like when I'd go clubbing with with my mates, because you know you're sixteen. You 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 trying to get into the clubs and everything, and my friends would cover me up and be like, "Your dad's sitting in the car park. Quit getting to the club." You know, it was it was it was like everybody knew who he what what this man was, but it was always put down to he's overprotective. So everybody would be like, "You've got a really overprotective father." So my friends, I'd go and stay at their houses so that I could go clubbing because I was never allowed you know allowed to. Have that kind of lifestyle, so I'd be like, I'm staying at my mate's house tonight, staying at my friends, and my friends' parents would cover for me too. And there was so many times where he'd knock on that door and say, "I want to see, I want to see her," and and my my friends' mum would be like, "No, no, they're they're in bed now. I'm not going to go and wake them up." So there was this dynamic I th- talking back to friends and parents of friends since um, he was arrested. Have said we always knew there was something but we didn't know what. And he was that type of guy that was really weird um, and some people would even say creeped me out, but was always put down to being the overprotective father that was just too overprotective. This
0: is mind-blowing. Yeah. Yeah. So you go on holiday.
1: Yeah, so go on holiday. Um, So 2006, fell in love with my now husband and... Kind of, like, use that as a way to be like, I can have a life.
0: Did you say you were in Spain, was it? Uh,
1: China- uh, Egypt. Egypt. Yeah. So I fell in love. Um, again, my father being so obsessed with me created hell on that holiday because he'd seen that I'd got this attraction for, for somebody. So he tried to stop it and was like...
0: How did he try to stop it?
1: But he'd beat me and lock me in the hotel room and be like, you're not going out down to the club tonight, you know. And... I remember my auntie being like, actually going to him and saying, she's, "She's she's adult in a sense, you know. She's seven, eighteen. You you can't beat her, and you can't lock her away from just living a life. So there was always people kind of always knew, but either didn't want to address it, or the very common." We're going to just brush this under the carpet because.
0: Was he an intimidating figure? Was he like big or was he aggressive?
1: He was not big, but he was intimidating in the sense that um, w- when we grew up, we grew up in a council estate um, in 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 uh, Southend on Sea, and he was always fighting with the locals. You know, all so he was not. He was very violent. Um, him and his brothers, my uncles, were kind of like a little clique. So they was always getting into fights. There was. Yeah, very violent. Everybody knew of them. Everybody knew the, the the Colby family name. It was very much the violence. But he, was, he, he is the, the serial manipulator. So although he wasn't a rich family, he would use money. So he was always taking everybody on holiday. He was always paying for everything. So people who I talk to now would say kind of hated him, but then felt controlled by him. Even on my wedding day, he paid for everybody to come for my wedding.
0: It's like on a much smaller scale, but like Epstein just had so much money, he yeah. just bought everybody, everybody. Bought went. everybody.
1: And and kind of bought that silence. I mean, there was a close family member who um didn't have much money, um, was constantly paying, paying and paying. Every time she had to struggle with the bill, he'd pay. You know, the money was although we weren't rich, but there was always the flow of money. To be able to silence, so he was that good cop, bad cop. People knew he was violent, knew there was something wrong, but because he would do, give you money, help you, he'd be your hero when you needed him. If anyone needed anything locally, he'd be the first person. I'll come and help you. Very much like that. So it, it was very, and I always remember people would be like, "Oh, your dad's so lovely, like he's so helpful," and I'd be like, "No, he's not. He's not. He's really not," because obviously I I knew the other side to him. But then other people would hate him.
0: So you're on holiday in Egypt. You've been beaten and told to stay in your room. How is that affecting you psychologically then that you want to meet, you know, you've met the love of your life, you mm. want to get out of that room. What are you planning in your head?
1: Well, I mean, that's a whole different story, to be honest, the whole holiday romance. But you know where you just know that you've met someone that would be able to handle? Because I was always, when I was growing up, I was always conscious of that whoever I met to have a family with would need to be able to handle this man and and the weird dynamics of my family as a whole. Um, my mother being, you know, so cold-hearted and not having a good relationship with her. The father that literally stalks me So, So interestingly, fallen I'd in, fallen in love, holiday romance and wasn't able to see him. Anyway, the, the, we were going home. The day we were going, uh, no, the night before we were going home, um they were putting on a big party for everybody, for, you know, the guests that were leaving, because it's probably like entertaining hotel. And I, as I walked past him, I slipped him my phone number on the back of a little card. And we were literally going home when I slipped in my phone number. Literally. We, the, the, the the coach was outside the hotel waiting to pick us up. So it was just that, pop my number in his pocket. Can I just pause you one second? Yeah. You've,
0: you've described brilliantly, like, <laughs> the number thing, but... What led up to that? Like, how had you actually met this person? I
1: hadn't. I'd just been eyeing him up across the beach, when and, and eyeing you up across the, the the room.
0: And had he been giving you the eyes back?
1: A little bit, a little bit, yeah. not a lot. Yeah. I mean, it was an all-inclusive hotel, right? So they were the entertainment. They were what they were called the animators in the hotel. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a big group of them. He was part of the animation team, and so obviously we he was like entertaining the guests. You know, you would do the volleyball on the beach. And then in the evening, the Fakir shows and the fire shows. You know, he was one of those. Yeah. And so I was always getting that wind of him. And then when we were going to eat, because we had set times for all-inclusive eating in the hotels, he'd you know be lining up for his food. So I'd do a little sly, you know, <laughs>
0: <laughs> little sly look.
1: Because I couldn't speak to him, yeah. because my dad had got wind of it and was doing everything in his power, as he'd always done previously, leading up to any success that I wanted or anything I wanted in my life, he would stop it, you know. Um, and so I had that going on as well. But, yeah, so I slipped in my phone number slyly as I got into the coach.
0: <laughs> it was your heart going when you did yeah. that? Yeah.
1: And then I got in the coach and cried. Oh. <laughs> because it's like, I'm going home now.
0: I've oh. <laughs>
1: just lost the love of my life.
0: Oh, <laughs>
1: So that was probably, you know, that young kind of, I've fallen in love. And, you know, that, that was the yeah. moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah. literally cried on the coach trip to get onto the plane.
0: Oh. Did the plane
1: journey and literally switched my mobile on and he was ringing me.
0: No oh, shit.
1: Yeah.
0: <gasps> well, did you have people around you so you couldn't
1: Yeah, I couldn't talk to him. I was like, Oh my
0: god, oh my god, oh
1: my god, you know that god moment.
0: The texting began.
1: Yeah. And and then it was it that was that was that really. Do you remember
0: the first text?
1: Yeah, because um he the first thing he said was I love you. <laughs> We'd never even met each other. <laughs> <laughs> he had great language, bless him, but it was like that. But He's like, "I love you," um, and so yes, yeah, so the texting began. And what then was the, your
0: response <laughs> to that? It's
1: <laughs> like chill. Like, <laughs> you slipping your money on <laughs> <laughs> Calm yourself, chill your beans. Um, and then yeah, so we then started having these phone calls, and bless him, because obviously works in the, he you know worked as an animator in the tourist industry, so he had a good level of English. But the phone calls would be hilarious, <laughs> absolutely hilarious. And so we, we spent, um, yeah, just connecting on the phone. And at the time, I was working in um, a secretary firm, in a criminal firm, actually, Defence, uh, as a legal secretary. And like I said, the, the dynamics of, of between me and my father was everyone who knew me knew about him. And it was interesting because my boss, I said to my boss, look, can I take some time off work because I want to go back to Egypt and visit this guy that, you know, I think I've fallen in love with. And he actually gave me some spending money. I think it was coming to that point of my life where everybody around me who couldn't protect me wanted me to to be safe. But I, I never really knew. I thought in my head I'd made myself safe, but I hadn't. So I went... Back to Egypt on holiday. Now, this is where it gets interesting. So I'm in Egypt, back in the same hotel in Hagarda, And the person, my husband, who had come to visit wasn't allowed to come near me. I'm thinking... Wasn't allowed by who? By his boss. By his team. And I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's because it's going to affect his job. But I was being watched by security constantly. So me and my friend had gone on holiday. Um I'm ever, you know, old enough age to be travelling... And it was interesting. Yeah, so anyway, I kept saying to my mate who who we were on holiday with, I'm not getting any chance to speak to him. I'm not getting a chance to be around him. And why are these security constantly around me? And she was like, I don't know, but it just feels really uncomfortable. Anyway, the night that um, we agreed to meet, me and him, I got called into the directors of the hotel's office and uh, had the security behind me. And they said, can we have your passport? So I said... Absolutely. You know what's going on? I's so handed them my passport, and they said, "Oh, oh well, you're not under 16." And one of our team is not trying to abduct you." I was just like, what the actual heck is this? Your father's made a phone call to the hotel and um, that you're underage. And that he's extremely concerned for your safety because we have a member of staff, my future to be husband, trying to to basically abduct you. You can imagine me, Sean. I was just like... This enough is enough, you know, so I went straight back to my hotel, I didn't care how much the phone call was going to cost me, I phoned him and I was going crazy down the phone to my, my father saying, you know, don't think I'm ever I'm never coming back from me, you. you've ruined it, you, you, you know, let me be free, is it not enough, the control and everything that you've done to my life, is this not enough? And he was just like, "I'm oh, I'm sorry. I was just worried about your welfare and this. I'm like, so, so obviously what had happened is because of that call, my future to be husband was not allowed to come near me. Because obviously they were just like, what is going on? What is going on? Anyway, I said my husband weren't going to give up. So we agreed to meet after like working hours and he was like, right, you're going to sneak off down this aisle, like meet me here and I'm going to meet you here. And it was just like, what the heck? Like I'm a grown, you know, I'm I'm an adolescent. I'm a teen, you know, what is going on here? And anyway, he said, we're going to go out for the night. It said like, just down into like the city and, and so my friend came and one of his friends come. So it was all safe and whatever. Anyway, he, I'll never forget. We sit in the taxi and he goes to me, I genuinely really like you. I think I've fallen in love with you. He goes, that connection that we had on that, that kind of that flowing meeting. He's like, it's like we're soulmates. He said, but what the hell is your father? What, what is this with your father? Well, obviously knowing in my head that who my father is, what, what he's done to me, never been, It's not out there. Nobody knows about it. I've covered his secret as I'd sworn I would take his secret to the grave, you know. Um, Again, I I did the whole, he's just a really overprotective father. Um, And, you know, I need you to understand that and explain. and, And he was such a good guy. He was like, I get it, you know. These visa stories, these women that get abducted and these girls and that. And he was like, oh, that's really sweet, actually, that he's trying to protect you. And then that was that moment where I'm like don't like him (laughs) like I want you to have a normal family but at the same time you can't get too close to this this man so that's kind of how it all started really but him being very much aware from that moment of time that I'm entering into something very different but of course just the overprotective father so came back to England um my husband and then got moved to a different hotel because the, he got into so much trouble because obviously we were found out that he was we were meeting up after work, et cetera he got into a lot of trouble. he was moved to a different hotel in Cairo again influenced by my father because once I'd got home to the u k and told everybody that I had fallen in love and I wanted to go and meet him again and I wanted to go back on holiday and I wanted to see where this was going to go, crap hit the fan. my father was like, "This is not happening." So everybody was trying to stop it. Everybody was saying that I'm making a big mistake. I'm ruining my life. And I could be adopted. You know all of that typical stuff, that visory stuff that's going to happen. So he'd done some back end phone calls, and next thing I know, my husband's ringing me from Cairo, from different, completely different phone number, and he's like, "Your father's really overprotective, isn't he?" <laughs> I was like, "What's happened now?" It was just constant, and it was like he was set out to stop what was going to happen. But he, he couldn't stop it, um. So yeah, he was moved to Cairo, and he said like, I'm literally losing everything. It's you know every well, my job, everything is is for you know you better bloody well be worth it, kind <laughs> of attitude. You better not like you better be like planning something quite serious because I've just been shipped from you know. And he was working in in a you know Hilton Hotel, five star in Egypt. He was a top anime. Everybody knew him. You know, he was one of the best, um, you know, fire, fo- flame throwers, and all of that stuff. You know, where they stand on the glass, and he was one of those. So he was like proper, you know, in a good position. And he's like, "I've just been shipped to Cairo because of whatever your father is getting up to." So at that moment, I just thought, seize the moment, seize the opportunity to just get away, to get out of England, and to to try and have have a happy life. Um. So, yes, yeah, so my, my boss turned around and said, you know, I'll, I'll give you six months, however you need. Um, don't Really don't want you to leave, but understand what you need to do. And at the time, my husband was like, well, I'm kind of losing my job now, so I'm going to go back to Tunisia. So that's that's where he's originally from. And he said, what, what are you planning? And I said, I'll come to Tunisia. I'll come for a month. I've been given a month off from my boss. I said, I'll come for a month. We'll spend some time together and we'll just see what happens. And and they've come back. Never came back. <laughs> well, I did eventually, obviously, because that's where the story then gets deeper. But um, so yeah, went to Tunisia, um, normal holiday, you know, romance, new new honeymoon period. We lived the life, beach partying, um, just fantastic. And then my husband proposed to me. And did, it was, did he
0: not know still at this point? No. Okay, and how long before, from when you met him to when he proposed?
1: So I met him in 2006 and he proposed a year later. Okay. About a year and a half later. So he said, traditionally, I need to ask your father. (laughs) No. (laughs) And I'm thinking, look, we're in Tunisia right now. Like, they're in the UK. We can just do this. But interestingly, my father's a very, very clever man. Uh Uh-oh. And he'd come on holiday to meet him with my mum. And he tried to kind of f- make fear, put fear into my husband and I'm very blessed.
0: What What did he do to do that? Just
1: try to show like he's aggressive, he's violent and, you know, try to put fear into my husband. My husband, I'm very blessed, Is a very solid, strong, mentally minded man and wasn't fazed by him at all. Wasn't fazed by his aggressive approach. I'll never forget when they turned up in Tunisia on holiday to, to meet my, my to be husband and, so aggressive and like shaking his arm, like trying to scare him, you know, all of that. And my husband just was not phased by it. So he's very clever because then he turned to be his best friend. So all of a sudden, they were getting this bond. And my husband was like, Your dad's amazing. Your dad's lovely. Oh, no. Right. Now, this is where it gets interesting because living in Tunisia, I couldn't get a job. But I didn't so my husband's family were helping my husband and I to live. And who else was helping us to live?
0: Your dad.
1: Was constantly sending us money, helping us to live in this country. So obviously my in laws loved him, thought he was just absolutely amazing. And I then eventually managed to get some work in a tourist area as a teacher, as an English teacher. But obviously, we're still heavily reliant on our families to support us. Um, and then when my father was coming on holiday, he was flashing his cash constantly. So, yeah, my, my husband asked him for, you know, saying that he was going to propose, and my father was like, yeah, whatever kind of thing. Um, because obviously, we'd been living in Tunisia for nearly a year now. Um, so, yeah, so leading up to the wedding... Um, that that was where I think my husband started to think something's not right now my husband had come from a a beautiful uh, family your your normal loving non-violent family so leading up to the wedding my parents came over to stay with us in where we were living in the tourist area in our apartment and they came to stay and It was. I'd had an argument with my mum over my wedding dress. Normal, typical things, right? That you, you know, getting stressed. It was a different country. We were planning to get married in a different country. It was all, but my parents were staying in our apartment, and we'd let them have our room, and we'd we were sleeping in the front room. And there was one night um, where my husband said he'd opened his eyes, and my dad was just lurking over the top of us. No. And he said, it just, it just, it was just kind of a bit like, are you are right, Ed? Uh, and he was like, oh yeah, I can't sleep. And he was on the balcony having a cigarette. And my husband said, just, that a moment of just, you know, that that's uncomfortable moment. So this was at the, the whilst we were doing the wedding planning. And anyway, like I said, I'd had an argument with my mum. I can't even remember what it was. Either the bridesmaid's dresses or the wedding dress or something. I can't even remember now exactly what it was. But I then started arguing I said something to my mum and had an argument, and next thing my dad was battering me in my apartment in front of my 2B husband, and he's on top of me and he's smashing my head in, and my mum's just sitting there all cold and going, this is why you shouldn't be marrying her, you're going to learn what she's really like, she is nasty, she is this, she is that, to my husband. And obviously my poor husband has never seen anything quite like it and felt so torn because it's like, that's my father-in-law, but that's my future wife. And my father-in-law is beating my wife right now. And her mum's doing absolutely nothing about it. So he's like trying to pull him off of me and trying to separate us. Um, so obviously I'm then saying, get out of the apartment, get out, like go. So they've started packing up their suitcases, because they still had a couple of days left of their holiday. And my mum's going, ah, oh, yeah, we're gonna go and stay in the hotel at the airport, and we're going back, back to England. So I'm, I'm letting them go and my husband's saying you can't let them go they're your parents like it, it's just really stressful there's so much going on it's the wedding and I don't know what I've just seen but they're your parents and because he's so culturally bound by parent, by their family system I'm telling to saying let them go I don't care you, you know th- this is normal for me this is this is what I'm I'm used to but for him it was just so unbelievable so anyway as as they're leaving, because they'd hired a car to put their luggage into the car, my husband's chased them down the stairs to, to make them stay. Now, unknowingly to me, Sean, at that point, he'd, he'd then got hernia. He'd ripped himself trying to run down the stairs. All right? But I didn't know this. So this was like two days before they were due to go back, or one or two days before they were due to go home back to England. And he's talked them round to coming back to stay in the apartment. He's just like, you know, we've got two more days left. Emotions are high, da-da-da-da-da, da da So he's talked him back to coming back and staying in the apartment.
0: Oh, no, this is going to get worse.
1: Right? Well, it was just another two days of hell, you know.
0: Did he try and beat you again?
1: No, because he'd seen that actually my husband was going to protect me. And that actually there's, a, there's this man that's coming into our life... That as much as he's completely confused and, you know, never been put in this situation before, seems to be able to be handling himself, which was very uncommon growing up. Anyone, you know, that I got close to me in my life, even friendship wise, he'd get rid of them, you know. So, yeah, they they then, when we had to play happy families for two days and thankfully it was only, I think, one day or two days. And we was at the airport saying goodbye to them and literally as they went to get, to walk through, you know, to go into their plane, my husband just collapsed on the floor. What? You know, and I'm living in a country where I can't speak the language and and I was just like, w- what? And he was like, like, just holding, you know, and got him in a taxi, lucky enough he was still able to speak, got him rushed to a hospital... And yeah, he was having an emergency operation because you know the hernia was so severe, and that kind of—I think that was the start to my husband being very confused by the family dynamics and by this man in particular. Um, got married again. All the family came. Um, he he paid for a lot of of them to come out to Tunisia. And just a very weird, warped wedding. If I'm honest, extremely warped, um, very weird. um, When you
0: say warped, what do you mean by that? Like the energy? The energy,
1: um, just just the way he is. Um, I mean, you know, when 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 my story went out publicly in the press, they've used one of my wedding pictures where um, I'm looking down at him, and he's you know get sort in my dress, and you can just see the 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 hate in my eyes towards him because despite as I thought the abuse coming to the end, he was still touching inappropriately. He touched my bum or he touched my body. He still felt like he owned me.
0: I was going to ask that earlier. It sounds like it's an ownership thing with him. Yeah. He's never going to let you go.
1: No. So you know, even when we were on holiday, when we were on holiday for my wedding, it was still very much that cooping me around. You know, places that touching. That's still very much that. Although you're getting married, you're still uh, you're still owned by me. Did I'm your husband still pick up on that? He just picked up on the weirdness of everything, the weirdness of the the situation between us, the the love hate relationship between us. He just picked up on everything. Um, but we then went on to. Um, you know, ha- have a, a lovely, you know, first year of our marriage. Um, and I kind of thought, yeah, that's it now. We're living in Tunisia. Um, I'm now married. I'm now, you know, with, you know, somebody else, protected by somebody else, and I can rebuild, I can start my life. Um, and then I fell pregnant with my first son while I was in Tunisia. And I phoned my parents to tell them that I was pregnant. And they were over the moon, my father was over the moon, and I then suddenly turned around and said to my husband, I can't have a girl, and he was like, well, it's, it's not up to you, it's the fate of, of God, like, it's not your choice, and I was like, no, no, I can't have a girl I can't have a girl. I can't bring a girl because obviously I'm aware that what I'm a, a girl, you know, my father's manipulation, control, um, just, you know, the constant inappropriateness, the still, the touching and the, the just knowing constantly. I was like, I can't have a girl. So I remember um, going and having a scan because it was, you know, I was living in Chinese, you can pray privately. So it was really cheap. When I got a scan and they're like, you're having a boy. I'm like, yes, mm. I've protected my future child. So I phoned up my father and he just went, you what? No, you can't have a boy. No, you need to have a girl.
0: Holy shit.
1: And I was like, well, I'm not. I'm having a boy, you know. And I was so, like, happy that I was, gonna, you know, I'd, I'd done this. So p- progressing forward, um, I got really ill in Tunisia. It was my first pregnancy. I was really, really ill. And we had to make the decision to come home. Um, well, obviously, we'd been living in Tunisia. And I was like, right, so I need to apply for your visa for my husband. You need to come to England. And we need to have the baby back in England. I'm, I'm just too ill. And I need to be back home. So my parents were like, you have to come and live with us. And I'm heavily pregnant. Very, very ill. And... My father then sponsored my husband for his visa because obviously the visa, the way it's working and the fact that we were going back to a country and we were, how we're going to work, how we're going to provide for ourselves. So he became the sponsor. So I came back to England about, I think, two or three weeks before my husband, because he needed to sort um, his visa and everything out in, in Tunisia. And it was it was at that moment, I think, that I just thought, you've just got us all now. Because I've got to come my home and live with you. You've just helped um, sponsor my husband to come into into the country. You've literally just gained your full control of all of us. So, yeah, so I came back to England and obviously I was living with them. And normal, you know, normal, as I believed, pregnancy. um, My husband came um, and they were all lovely to him at the beginning and then I think that was the 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 real changing point for my husband, being living inside this house was all of a sudden was like, "There is something really not right with this family." but couldn't talk to me about it, because obviously I'd never spoken to him about it. And I remember saying to him when we were planning to come back to England, I said to him, "Don't like him. be very careful of him. I know you like him." don't ever be so naive around him. So like I was constantly warning him, but he was just like, what the heck is wrong with these people? They are insane. Like these people are, are crazy, you know? Um, yeah, but I think when he when he then came, that was the turn, that was the moment where he was just like, this is not a normal family. Not a normal family at all. So we gave birth Um, And I had a very, very traumatic birth. I was left paralysed from my first child, so I was needing a lot of care. And.
0: paralysed in a particular part of the body? In my leg. Leg. Um, So that means you couldn't walk properly, or? No,
1: and I couldn't care for my first child. So my husband and my father became the carers to my first child. Um, And for anybody else, having a granddad that was that caring would have been extremely, oh, you're so you're so lucky in my head. I'm thinking, no, I can't have you attached to to my child. Um, So anyway, we were living inside the home and it was just it was a really it was a really hard time. And I was just starting to get better and I was just starting to have my physio and to go into recovery. And it was very stressful and whatever else. And there was lots of tension in the family. And then I can't even remember how it happened, but then I ended up to be a massive argument between all of us in, in, in the home. And I remember just sitting outside and my husband and my father having a massive big argument and getting very vis- physical. Do you know very what that physical. was over? I can't remember what it was over. Very physical my you know my, my father was very fine they'd been they'd been falling out since the moment he he'd, he'd come to the country and was living inside the house they just that was it it was just no they were just constantly arguing my mum was constantly arguing with me it was just it was just awful and there was a moment when he turned round and he said to my husband that's my son about my husband's son Whoa. So my husband got up and he was like, get your stuff, get my son. We are leaving this house. I don't know where we are going, but we are leaving. And it was like, that was just a moment that was just like, no. This is, I, I, we're not we're not staying inside this home. And my husband was like, it's not your son. He's my son and I can look after him and we don't need you. And it, And it was just that <sighs> defining moment of... OK, this relationship and this dynamics is really starting to get quite scary. Yeah. So we got out and, you know, we, we had our own home. And then...
0: How did you get your own home so fast?
1: We had a, a really good, great friend um, and her mum who who lived next door, but one was neighbours to my, my parents for a very long time, helped us. Wow. She was just like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to be your guarantor. I'm going to help you get you and your family where you need to be so we didn't move far we only moved down the road um but again he still had that control so you know fixing uh, arguing making up fixing the family my husband still being really confused but saying you know that's your family at the end of the day and it's all we've got you know I've left my family etc um so it just that very it was such a warped looking back it was so warped and so dysfunctional um and just, you know, so much going on. But when I look back now, but thinking to myself, but at least my sexual abuses are over. Yeah. And although I've got this really dysfunctional family going on, at least that that had all been gone. And this is just the crazy part of my father that everybody knows and everybody has to get used to. And um and I think in a way my husband got used to it. You know, he did get used to it. He got used to the the dysfunctional family and um and the craziness and the violence. You know, and, and and the fighting and the arguing with my, my father, it just becomes so, sadly, it becomes so normal then for him mm. to be so in, ingrained in, and, and cooped up in it all. Um, and then, yeah, you know, every time we needed something, it was always my father was coming to do it. If the car had broken down, my father was coming to fix it. He was just constantly the one that everybody relied on. Um, and it just got to the point where I just couldn't. I just couldn't take anymore. And I just said to him, "We need to move away from this area. We, I, I can't. We'd had such a uh, so many arguments. Our marriage was, you know, really struggling because my father was so heavily involved in it. And my husband was just at the point where I, c- I can't take this anymore. And I was like, I can't do it anymore. So we actually moved to Colchester in Essex. So you know, in in our eyes, like a couple of hours away. But Still being very controlled, and I think my husband's still having that you know manipulation around him too i we would go I, you know I'd go back every week on a Wednesday and take my son and spend the night at the at the at the house so that they could have see you know see their grandkids very much aware that my son you know needed to be protected, but no and everybody just saying, "Oh, you're becoming like your father, I'm really overprotective and I'm like, no." Because like, I always knew, you know, I had this huge weight in the back of my head that I've got to protect my kid, you know, because I just never know. But at the same time, it's a little boy, so I'm all right. So it wasn't long. Um, like I said, so my son was born in 2009. Um, and then in 2011, uh, we were going to Tunisia on holiday. So parents, you know, could meet our son because he was only little. Um and my parents were going to France because we had a family member in France. So, yeah, that was it. So I was in Tunisia um, having a, a holiday. And we'd gone to, you know, like in Tunisia, like local hammam, you know, the scrubbing and all of that stuff. So we'd gone to one of them. And at the time, I wasn't a very spiritual person. I really was not spiritual at all. Lived life. It is how it is. Anyway, anyway. I don't know if you know much about the Tunisian culture or the Moroccans and the Middle Eastern culture and how they believe in like the evil eye and, and that.
0: No, please explain it so we have a full yeah, understanding. Yeah, so
1: they under you know they believe very much in about be careful about if someone's you know jealous of you or because they can put uh, like what they call like an evil eye onto you and and so they wear like the hand of Fatima for protection, the five hands and all, all that kind of thing. And I was just like, whatever, you know, <laughs> I'm an It's I don't care. I don't need protection. I can fight. I can handle myself. I'm fine. <laughs> I don't need no protection. <laughs> and his mom, because lucky enough. Um, I'd replaced the the love that I never had from my mum with my husband's mum. She was like my mum. You know, she treated me like a daughter and beyond. And she was always worrying about me constantly, especially when I lived out there. I was young, blonde, blue eyes, you know, in a foreign country. I was never allowed out because she'd be like, come, come, you know. The men are going to try and talk to you. you know, she was just a beautiful, natural, loving parent that I found very hard at the beginning. But it was this one evening when we'd gone to this local hammam and it's it's very traditional. And we'd gone into the water and, you know, everyone's you know scrubbing and the salt watering everything. And I still didn't know the language very well at that point. Um, never really bothered to learn it, if I was honest. <laughs> or everyone just speaks to speak English. It was very much like the Brit. You all need to talk English. I'm not going to learn your language. But something happens. And like I said, I'm not spiritual at that point. But now as you look back and you reflect on life and you think wow, there was so much that led me up to this point that now as a reflective, kind of informed person, I get it all. But at the time, it would have just been like, whatever. But basically, there was a group of like very traditional old women in the hammam and they started chanting and working around me. So my sister-in-law just grabbed me out of the hammam and said, right, go and get changed, we're going. And I was like, that was a bit weird. And it felt weird. I was like, so I come out over the Hema, I'm like, women on one side, men on the other. We all come back together. We're all going to go and grab something to eat. And my husband's like, oh, did you like it? Did you like it? I was like, no, it was hell. I hated it. It was awful. What was, what was that that I just went through? And he was like, I don't know what you mean. And I said, I feel like something bad's going to happen. I said, like, there was this chanting thing going on around me. And he was like, oh, you have to be careful of women that are jealous of you. Um that evil line, and that protection and everything. So no, I went home. I still felt really weird about that whole thing. Anyway, went to bed and at a stupid o'clock in the morning, my phone rings and I answer it and it says, can you hear me? With this voice, because I couldn't hear him, And I said, no, no, sorry, I can't hear you. Who is Essex Police, sorry. Mm. But I couldn't hear them. And this was the night after this incident had happened around this... I just knew there was something bad, but I didn't know what. And, no, I can't hear you. And my phone was crackling and everything. My phone cut off, and I'm going to my husband, Essex police, the police, oh, my God, like, what's happened? And I just, it was like, instinctively, I didn't know what. I just knew it was really, really bad. So they then called the house phone to my in-laws in Tunisia. So I have picked up the phone, and they've gone, right, you're safe. Your father's been arrested. And I've gone, I don't know what you're talking about, acting like normal, because I don't, you know, I've never shared anything. What, what you're talking about? What's, what's gone on? They went. We know everything. And you're now safe. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to say anything. We don't even need you for evidence. We've got it all. So, do you know what I replied? Oh my god, why are you doing this to me now? Why are you trying to destroy my family now? you're too late, what are you talking about? And my father's going to kill himself if he goes to prison. And they went, we know that's what you believe and that's how you've grown up to believe. He's not killed himself, he is in prison and we need to get you home. You're now safe. I was just like... And I, I'm screaming... I'm like I couldn't even talk on the phone the phone just dropped and I'm just screaming on the floor like some crazy girl. My husband's picking me up going, "What's happened? What's happened?" And I just remember saying to him, "If you don't 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 come back to England with me, keep my son here because my son's only little. Keep keep this keep our son." I understand that you will never want to be with me and I will give you my son. I was in that much of a mess. I was like, I'll give you my child. And he's going, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know what's going on. So your father's been arrested. It's okay. And I'm like, for child sexual abuse of me. That was the first time I had to say it to him. And he just went, okay, I'll hold your hand and we'll get back on the plane and we're going home. So for a couple of days, I had to stay in Tunisia. And to be honest, Sean, I don't remember anything. Um, I don't remember how I washed, how I... I remember his mum lifting me at some point, putting me in a shower and showering me down. I I don't remember functioning. Um, I just remember just being and just, yeah, just not being able to function. And I remember trying to call family members. Nobody would speak to me. And what was interesting about that was just before I'd got the phone call... I'd been messaging my father, asking how France was going. And he'd been replying to me. But it wasn't him replying to me. Because the police didn't want me to find out that they'd arrested him because they were worried I'd never come back. And although they didn't need me, they needed me in a certain extent to, you know, for the investigation. But the reason they had to phone me, as I found out, was because the press had tried to leak the story... And they'd said that, you know, he'd been arrested for... Um, I think at the time they'd said something about following a 13-year-old girl after school or something. And so they were worried that... Be- and so they got that press closed down, but then they got worried that somebody, one of my friends may have seen it and would call me and say, your father's been arrested, it's in the, it's in the news. So they made a decision from the police perspective that we need to ring her and tell her ourselves because it could be that she doesn't come back to the country... Um, and they were obviously very concerned about the cultural differences between my husband and I, you know, he was an Arab man, and, the, 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 the you know, all of that baggage that comes with it of how he would cope with it. And I think that was the 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 opening of my story. Because when I come back, I never imagined what I was going to find out. <laughs> I thought it was just child sexual abuse when I was young. And I walked back into this this absolute, I can't even describe what I came back to. And I just remember getting on the plane, coming, driving, because we picked our car up from the airport, driving to my parents' house and just walking in and just kind of breaking down. But then obviously the police coming to see me and the story just unfolding and it was just, So unbearable and so much information for me to take in, I couldn't physically take it in.
0: When you got to the house, was it your mum who greeted you?
1: It was my mum and um, my auntie and her friend.
0: And what was your initial reaction to them when you first saw them?
1: Just relief. Because I'd been trying to call them and all they just kept saying is, we believe you, we believe you, just come home, we believe you, we believe you, just come home. But unfortunately, the reason they wanted me to come home was because some of them were being um, interrogated and investigated, so they actually didn't want me because they wanted to love me and nurture me and, and look after me. They actually needed me to get them out of trouble mm. because they were, you know, being questioned for neglect and, you know, on suspicion of how, how could this have all, all happened because he became... It became one of the most serious paedophilic crimes at that time.
0: So you've been greeted then by your family members. What happens next?
1: So, just kind of talking it all out, talking it all out. And me, like I said, I'm going in the perspective of, okay, I was just a kid. And, you know, so then the police coming to see me um, and start unravelling. So, basically, what they unravelled was so they're saying to me, we don't need you. And I'm like, why don't you need me? That's fine. And they were like, we have over 160 hours of video footage of your child abuse from very young, oh my right God. up until you were date raped. Oh, my God. So, video footage. So, what happened was they explained it to me. So, they'd raided the house because they'd got a phone call that they were people were concerned that he was up to... My father was a paedophile. And when they raided the house, they opened the room that he used, which was like a small office. And the police officer was waving to the police officer. So, the police officer was in a the bedroom that me and my hu- the husband, is, well, my bedroom that I grew up in. And the police officer was sitting in the office room in a computer screen and saying, I can see you. And he was going, how can you see me in this, be- in this room? How can you see me? Don't know. So they went into the other rooms. And every room they went into, they could see him. He had installed uh, cameras in the light sockets of every room and had recorded for years absolutely everything. So they traced. When he looked up, the police officer said, yeah, I can see you are looking at me. And he's going, I'm looking at a light bulb. Like, and then all of a sudden they were like, took the light down and the cameras were fitted. So they got up into the loft and they traced and tracked and got rid of, took all the lights out. So the video footage was just sitting there and then they went downstairs and opened the drawers in the front room and all the drugs were there, all the date rapes, all the ecstasies, all, all the drugs, the cocaine, everything that he used to he used to use. Um, and then I remember they went... When you up,
0: say he used to use, you mean on him or he used to ply you with those drugs?
1: He used to ply me with drugs, yeah. So where I was in my head believing that I was a... A child abuse survivor, victim, whatever you want to call it, from a young age. But when I had escaped at the age of 15, I was free. I wasn't. And I think that was the hardest thing to deal with, was actually knowing that he had been putting drugs into, like, my cups of tea and my milk every time that I'd been back there. Oh, my God. So I think that was... I think out of all of that, that was the most hardest, to actually... Because it felt like you were ripping away every ideal that I'd had, that I'd actually created a life for myself. And the more they were telling me, the more I was finding out that actually I didn't have a life. And so, yeah, and they went up in the loft and there was like like a big shrine and all sorts, they found all sorts up there. that was connected to my growing up and everything. So they had all this video footage that the poor police officers had to sift through hours and hours and hours of it.
0: What do you mean by shrine
1: just uh pictures just um they they said it was like weird stuff like there was just pictures and letters and just everything, but everything that like even I had done as a kid so if I'd written to like in a diary there was my diaries were there like just everything was just up in this loft and it, they said it was just the most creepiest weirdest thing to have found and the fact that you know they had you know the fact that he'd he'd done this this video recording and how as they worded it how clever it was had it not been so sick um so there was lots of things unfolding um they then told me that he'd served a prison sentence in 1973 or 5, I can't remember the exact date now, for rape of a young girl in the army. And, and I was born 10 years after that. But the story at the time, I, I confronted my family when they when the police told me. They said, were you aware of that? I said, well, obviously, I wasn't aware of that. I said, so we've got a, we've got a, um, a convicted criminal then, have we? And they said, he's got history. He's got records for a lot, he served time in the army. Um, he'd been in a lot of trouble with bringing, um, I think it was the, what they said was bombs over from the IRA when they were fighting over in Ireland. They said there's there's history on him. Um, so I just remember saying to my my mum, like, "You you married a rapist and you're sitting here acting like you're surprised. But actually, you're not surprised, are you? Because you, you married a rapist. And then she was like, well, you know, your dad was violent. So what, what the police had tried to believe at the beginning that she'd been manipulated by him and drugged by him too. um. But obviously she'd been arrested. Um. But it then came out that she was absolutely obsessed with this man and heavily in love with him because she had written him a letter that I, that they'd found saying, whatever you need to do, just do it. Just don't ever leave me. So do what you want with the kids, but just don't ever leave me. And I remember going and sitting down and saying to her, like, were you really that, that infatuated by this man that you allowed your children to be beaten and sexually abused so that you could just keep him? And I said, and now that explains why you're so jealous of me and why you would always been jealous of me. And she was like, yeah, you took my love away. And it was just like So that was kind of the start of me going, I'm not here to be loved and looked after and I haven't got the mum that I was coming back from Tunisia hoping that she was gonna say, Oh my god, and I'm so sorry, and I love you and I wanna I wanna protect you. I wasn't getting that. Um and then there, so it, things were just unfolding constantly about, about, the, about the prison and the army and all these different things. And it was like they were telling me about this man that just wasn't my father anymore. It just, it just wasn't. Um, and I remember them saying to me, right, we need to ask you this question and you don't need to answer, but can you remember anything to so we can get some highlight on your age? Because they, this is what they said. They said, the videos... They said because they said we've got a very intelligent man here, right? Um, You know, fitting cameras and and, all, and more, as we found out later on, Um, getting some of the the, the best drugs imported into the country for 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 rape. Um, they said you know we've got a very intelligent man. So they said, can you? He said, and some of the video footage, how you look is not matching the date on the video footage. You know, because it's like old camcorders, you know, so I had the the, the dates and stuff. So I so said, can you remember anything that can just give us a hint of how old you were when this first started? Because your father's claiming um, a mutual consensuous relationship. <laughs> Incest, right? So I turned around and said, I described what I, the only thing that I could remember I described and all of a sudden, the police officer went. Why? I looked at my mum, and my mum went, "No, she can't remember that. She was too young." So I remembered, and I, I described a, a flowery sofa that was in a house before the house that I grew up in, and that particular house had been burned down. Um, and my mum's said, "No, she can't. She can't remember. She can't. She can't remember that, surely." And I'm like, and I described it. And it's actually the picture that's out in the press. And the police officer went, That's what you've just described. So I was four. Oh my God. That was the earliest memory that I could describe, was around three and a half, four. So, yeah. So as the plot thickened and just. you know what Sean every day the police were coming to the house every day there was more stuff more stuff more stuff trying to find out if there was more more girls more people involved if it was just me if it was just trying to find out constantly everything and um, it was really interesting well it wasn't interesting but um, I kind of just managed to like be there to like be involved with everything and just, just getting on with it. And it was like it was not really happening to me. It was like a completely different surreal part of life. And it was interesting because they kept coming. you know, you, you got a laugh, but it, it just wasn't funny. But at the time, they were like, there was about between 100 to 200 keys. Now, my dad was a builder, right? and they were going and they were going to the building sites where he used to work and they were finding cuz they were trying to i don't know what they were looking for in particular but they were trying to find more stuff and then they were like we've got a skeleton key and I was like what's a skeleton key they were like a key that could access all buildings and they were like, was there any time? And I was, and I remembered this one time where I'd heard somebody in my flat. And you know where you think, oh, God, I'm tired, and I'm going crazy. And I was like, they were like, were there times where you could hear people in your home? And I was like, yeah, all the time. But I used to think I was going mad. I just had a newborn baby. I was exhausted. I was suffering with, you know, mental health issues and trauma, et cetera. And they were like, he used to come into your home while you were sleeping and I was just like this is this is just getting too much for me to comprehend and then the house that we were living in in Colchester the police came up and they went in every plug socket and got transmitters out (laughs) I was like is there anything else that we need to be be looking for. So he was installing transmitters into the plug sockets and just listening to everything, I guess. Just he he was just a he was just a part of the life, you know? So yeah. So there was a there was a lot, a lot of evidence.
0: So on the tapes then, how many people were being abused on the tapes? It was just me. Okay. Did you say you had siblings?
1: Yeah, I've got uh, brothers, just brothers.
0: So he went after females only?
1: Yeah, to a certain degree.
0: There was abuse of the brothers?
1: There was uh, violence of the brothers. Physical abuse. Vis- physical abuse. My, my closest brother actually moved out of the house very, very early because he was always being beaten by my my father. My other brother, who's my, my half-brother from a different, um, different father, um, he actually removed... Him because um, it came about that social services were involved in our upbringing because there was a time where my father had put my half brother's hand on a fire and was burning Jesus. it, and so my mum had been compromised to say like he can't live with you, and she let her son go to to his his real dad. So you know he he was a very nasty, violent character. Um, that was just that just got away with it, and and I said to the police. I remember saying to the police, "Did he want to get found? Because the evidence was everywhere, Sean. You didn't have to look very far. You just had to open a drawer. You just had to put on the, the TV, and the, the video footage would come would come out. He'd been watching it the night before we went to France. That's how they found it all.
0: Oh yeah, how did they right? get him? Yeah, how did they get <laughs> we him? We missed that bit, haven't we? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So one of my family members looking after the house to go in and walk with the plants where people where people go on holiday. That's what you used to do back then, didn't you? You'd give the key to somebody and say, can you, can you put my post in? Can you look after my stuff? One of my close family members, which I can't name um, for protection reasons, got a suspicion, to say the least, that the way he was acting towards my son was not quite right. Didn't didn't feel comfortable with the overprotectiveness he was passing down, and how it all came about. I, I, I'm not going to I'm not going to say because it's not for me, um, because I wasn't here. I was in Tunisia, so I've just got what I've what I know of, um, and you know everybody's got that side to that story that I'm I'm never going to know, in honesty. I've, I've tried to discuss it with, with people, and, and I'm never going to get what, from what I know is this this close family member who was in charge of the house at the time just got suspicion, went upstairs and pressed the play button on that TV and it, he wa- watched the rape and the abuse. Took the video footage, freaking out. Um, lucky enough, went to a family member very close family member that wanted to protect who always has suspicion and when we're calling the police other family members have tried to stop that phone call to the police because they wanted to cover it we can deal with this we can deal with this we're calling in France we're getting back we can deal with it ourselves I'm so blessed that this particular person who I will love for eternity um, said no get on I'm ringing the police so, closed the doors, protected the house, and that's how the investigation started.
0: Was that a video, a video that he'd made recently, or was that from Oop, when you were very old, young?
1: Old, older. Uh, oh. more t- le- Early, teens, early mm. teens. So, that's why they were then confused with us when they started raiding the house. So, they, they couldn't let me get wind of it because I was in Tunisia. They couldn't let him get wind of it because he was in France. So the, you know, the, the way to get him began for the police's side of it, which was keeping it all hush-hush, getting hold of the family members that wanted to ring him and making sure that they didn't do the deed and then waiting for him, for them to arrive back from France and when they was on the coach, all the police following the coach, and surrounding the coach, and then when the coach managed to do its one of its stops, which they obviously they knew was when they were going they went on and arrested him. Um. Yeah.
0: What was your conversation like with your husband then after all this went down?
1: I think he was. <laughs> I can't remember much, but I think he was. He was so he was he was just so like you were a kid. He was an innocent little child, and having a son of you know a couple of years old ourselves, and him, him looking at him and like not being able to grasp that you know that that was you because you know the grooming started very very young. You know, literally the minute I was born. You know, in in a sense, I was born for that. That's what I was born for. Um, because you know he'd had previous convicting history of. Um, he you know he was in the black he was in the the the, the ring the dark what they call it the dark web he was known as teddy in that
0: he was on the dark web
1: yeah he was known as teddy
0: do you know what um groups he was in or anything like that
1: i'm not 100% sure they never disclosed much of that information so oh. he had he had his connections and i know he had connections in uh, good connections or maybe not connections but i know he's very clever because how this um they had the evidence. They they did. They didn't need me, but there was a lot of things that weren't matching up. Now I was living in Colchester. I was going through a lot. My husband was trying to be as supportive as possible, but I spent a lot of time down um, in in at the, the, the family home. Anyway, I um I get a phone call from my uncle, and he says, "Did you get the letter?" So my, my father's on remand now in in prison didn't get any letter from your dad. Letter? No. I've been to see your dad today, visited him in prison, and he got a letter to you. No, I haven't got the letter. So I put the phone down, shut the phone to the police, and I'm saying, what letter? And they were like, oh, I'll come and talk to you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> Can you imagine me like I don't want any more phone calls I don't want to know anything else just let me live my life please oh. So they turn up and they say um we we won't we, we didn't need to worry you because we got the letter from the rapist that was coming to your house to deliver it to you What He'd written me a letter given it to whoever was serving with him to get it to me
0: it was a rapist.
1: Yeah. In his wing. But don't worry, I said, because we've got the letter. We'll come and fit some panic alarms and you'll have um, you know, an alarm in your bag and whatever. So that you feel safe. But can you meet us at the family home? Because the letter is what we needed. <laughs> you are not got enough? You want a bit more? So... Off I trot the next day, driving down to the family home, thinking, what on earth is this? You know, and, and, and to be honest, you know, pretty darn freaked out, pretty scared for my life at this point, pretty confused on how a man that's just been in, you know, remanded into prison is managing to get, um, you know, trying to get letters to me and God knows what else, when they were telling me, you know, he, he's on a secure wing, can't access you, he can't get nothing to you, da-da-da, you don't have to worry, you da-da-da and all of this. Anyways, turn up at the house and um, they go, police go running through the house straight to the back of the garden. There's two sheds at the back of the garden. They go wherever they need to go and they get this black box out. And um, they open the black box, one goes to vomit, mm-hmm. one takes what they need and they walk out. And I had no idea what it was. But the letter had said, n- not that I know it word by word, but I got the, the, the gist of the letter was asking me to burn what was in the box. Burn the box. So I was being asked by my father to burn the box. And obviously, I never got that letter because they'd already got hold of it. However, they got hold of it is a, is a whole different story. But I was being asked by my father to protect him, to save him, and I'm sure it was all pleasant in the letter. Um, to burn the box. And I didn't get to burn the box. So the box was retrieved. So anyway, we're going on now. Life, you know, trying to deal with life, trying to deal with husband, trying to be a mum, waiting for the sentencing to happen. And I couldn't... It was like... I. I I couldn't process the information, all of this information that was coming in, the lights, the transmitters, the the keys, the this, the this, the that, the that, the prison previously before. I just couldn't process all of this information, Sean. And I just felt like I was going crazy. Um, And actually, I think I felt like because because of the dynamics between me and my father, him walking me down the aisle, him being heavily part of my life... I guess, if I'm honest with you, is that I kind of needed some... I needed to see that I was a child because I have starting to get a bit, like, what's going on in my life, like, you know, and him, him writing me this letter to burn this evidence. It was all kind of like... You know, it didn't feel like, okay, this is a man that's been arrested for child sexual abuse because it was becoming so, I don't know, like, just so disgusting in a sense that he was actually writing to me to ask me to burn the evidence and I'm thinking what ev- like <laughs> what evidence you know what so I remember calling um I had some fantastic police officers that I'd chosen to work on the case absolutely amazing can't you know can't fault them at all and I remember saying to her um I need to come and watch the videos Right, <laughs> and oh, God. her saying you've been so incredible throughout this whole investigation why do you need to watch the videos so I explained why I needed to watch the videos so she said I've got to get this approved because you're in a really good place stably and mentally and we have to be safeguarding you to make sure that you remain in that place but I, w- I couldn't let it go. I couldn't let it go. I n- I needed, I needed to see. I don't know what I needed to see, but I needed to see something. Um. So I got the phone call. Yeah, you can come and watch some of the videos. Yeah. So. I get in the car by myself, and I drive to Brentwood, um, police station, and I walk in and I'm like, I'm ready. And they're like, look, we can't show you everything. We can we can only show you some that we feel is is appropriate. Um, and I'd asked for some specifics. I, I, I wanted, I just needed something, and so I asked for specifics of what I needed to see, in order to be able to continue my life, Sean. You know, um. So, yeah, I remember just sitting in the police station and she's going, are you ready? And I'm like, yep, yeah, I'm ready. So I asked for three particular things that I needed to say. Um, and and I, I needed to say that I was very young. And I needed to say and I needed to watch that I didn't, um, I wouldn't say agree to it, but I didn't allow it, yeah? So I watched the first video um, and I was in my little school uniform pinafore. You know, back in those days, we used to wear those little checkered, um, my little socks up to my knees. And uh, I just needed something to know that I was I was I was innocent and I was a kid and I'd been groomed. So the one in particular they allowed me to watch because it wasn't quite as as horrific as the others. Um yeah, was me as a very small kid and I will never forget and I turned and said, "Are you happy with me now, daddy?"
0: Oh, Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah. And I had, I had, to, I had, I had to watch it, um, because I just felt like everything I was finding out so far out of my imagination that I needed some kind of perspective again. So I was very, very little, and I watched that one. And then I, I, I said, I need to watch something where I can, I can feel that. I didn't just allow it. So the 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 one that they let me watch, um, and I'm not going to talk too much about it, um, one because I don't want to. But it, there was part of the scene where um, he had the video camera actually in his hand, and he was laughing and, and hackling and saying, "Are you ready? Are you ready?" and I've just turned around and I've said something that, you know, yeah, I'm ready. And I've just booted him straight in the face and I've started hitting him. And 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 like, and all of a sudden the camera just drops to the floor because obviously I've knocked it out of his hand and it just goes black. And it was like, that for me, Sean, was such a relief. That moment watching that was like, Yes, there were times where I fought you, and, and I, I tried to stop you, because the way it was all unfolding, like this, literally, like this this crime scene was unfolding, was it just was too much for me to try to understand where I played a role. Yeah. Um, that, despite how, I don't want to talk about the graphics of it. Um, was relief that was, okay. There was a sense of me that went, seeing me as a little girl, groomed, so innocent and so pure, asking my daddy if if he's happy now, to slightly older, attacking you where I felt I could. So I watched um, just some portions of them. And it was interesting because the police officer, she said to me, once you've watched these, will you be... They'd asked me to do like a a statement to, to be read out in court, and I'd refused to do one because I was still of the mindset that he was going to kill himself because that's what, he'd, that's what I'd grown up. If you, if you tell anyone, I'm going to kill myself. And they, she sat there and she was like, he's not dead, is he? He's been in prison now in Ramon for a very long time, and he's still not dead, and I was refusing to do this statement, Sean. Sure. So they thought, okay, watch the videos, then maybe you'd be wanting to do the statement. I still didn't want to do the statement. I just needed some clarification some closure. So we were, we were discussing it, because um, obviously, you know, we're still talking about it, and she's like, are you okay? I said, "Can I go outside and take a break? She was like, yeah, absolutely. And then I, took, I went outside, and I'd actually taken my mum with me, stupidly. She was just sitting there going, "Oh, how much longer is this going to take?" <sighs> right? They're probably like the 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 biggest worst moments of my life. At how much longer? So no, anyway, I went back in. And I said to her, "I need to know what was in the black box." Oh my god! Because I just couldn't give up, Sean. And I think because of the way I've worked through this investigation with them, and I think because of how I don't know the words for it. You look at child sexual abuse, don't you? And you hear all these stories about she got to 12 or 13 and then he stopped. She got to an age of puberty and it stopped. It, you know, this is, I'm not saying that it's, it, that, you know, I'm not devaluing it. I'm saying, but it's kind of like that's the stories that you always hear. You always hear about it stops at a certain age. So you'll hear from an, uh, an abuse survivor and they'll say, like, it was from the age of 6 to 12. But mine wasn't stopping. And it, it was just too much for me to, to comprehend. So I was asking for other things. So she started showing me some other things that really pieced my life together. Um, so I said to her, can I, what was in the black box? So she got it out. And it was a black diary. And the Black Diary um, is what got him to be sentenced because it scored me for every rape and every abuse from 0 to 10. And he coded the drugs that he used on each day and each time. So he didn't leave me with very much in my life. And as well as quite degrading. So I was scored, um, and yeah, it, it had initial like E for ecstasy, times whatever. So it was a written account of everything. And this particular diary, the one, there was obviously more diaries, but this one that they showed me matched up to what they'd been watching on the videos etc so everything all of a sudden it was just there in writing there was no confusion there was no um is that the date is this the date is that the age it was just it was just there but the diary was just so in depth that he he'd put like when he was where he was stalking me you know and whose house I was in but I think What upset me the most, which is quite ironic in light of the subject, was that the times where I thought he didn't know, he knew. Does that make sense? It's like where I thought... So, like, I lived in Tunisia, and they showed me, like, emails that I'd sent to get a job, and he had blocked them from getting to the job. He was hacking into all my emails. He was hacking in... You know, like, he was a part of every single thing... And I think that actually, because the child abuse and what had happened to me had been blocked by the memory, that actually felt more painful than actually going through the abuse that I went through. Because I just looked at her and I said, so actually no point in my life did I have control of my own life. You know, and when I was sneaking to my friends thinking, ha, oh, I'd got away with that tonight, it was all part of the game. It was all part of the, I don't know, it's like the game that he'd played out, how how he wanted it to be, that control, that, that thrill of manipulation, that thrill that actually she believes that she, I don't know. You know, and da- down to down to the diary was just down to everything. It, it it just had everything in it, and so it was just his written account, which could never be denied in the court of law. So that was that was the evidence in in, in total.
0: I'm gonna ask you next what the conversation was like with your husband, but I'm just gonna put my jacket on because I've started to feel a
1: bit <laughs> You're getting cold. I've
0: gone very cold and yeah. nauseated.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, oh. the the conversations with my husbands, you know, oh. he doesn't he, he he doesn't listen to these parts when I do interviews. He won't he won't watch them. He won't listen to them. Um, he's never watched my Channel Five documentary, and and I'm glad because, you know, there's some things that husband wouldn't want to know to a certain extent. Um, I
0: just want to say because I'm just like I'm, I'm stunned right now actually. Mm. I just want to say how brave you are to like. Mm. Insist on doing the things that you insisted on doing to get to the absolute bottom of it. And I'm sure, oh, Jesus Christ, if anyone's watching this feels like me right now, then please put in the comments, you know what how you feel about how brave she is, because it's just mind-blowing, mm. it really is.
1: Yeah, and I and I, I I I don't even know where it all come from, <sighs> Sean, if I'm honest. Um You know, I don't know where like, why why I needed to know what I needed to know. I think it's it was to survive. Because I asked this to the police officer, I said to her, why, why am I so determined to, to know all this? She said, because, she said, how you survived, she said, cause, she said, you actually shouldn't be alive by the extremity of what happened. You should not be alive, she said, which is why in that video that you watched where I'm on the phone to a mate from school whilst I was being abused, and I'm watching it going to her. I was laughing. She was like, I know why you're laughing. She said, because it's absolutely, like you you couldn't you Do you know what she's her, her parting words with me were if you'd heard it in a, if you'd watched or heard about it in a film, you wouldn't have believed it. But actually, you've lived it. That was her parting words the day that we parted after the, the court um hearing was you wouldn't even believe it if you'd if you had watched it. In, in, on a film, on, on a, a documentary, or, or, you know, she said, but you actually lived it. Um, and, yeah, and I remember saying to her, you know, why do I, why do I need, what, what is wrong with me? You know, why am I trying to piece all this together? And she said, because to survive, you detached your mind and your body.
0: Laughing well, was a coping mechanism. Yeah,
1: but she said, and now what you're trying to do is piece the mind and the body back together. She said, "And if you didn't have this information, what you're watching in front of you, you,", w- you she said, "I would be in, uh, in fear of your your safety leaving this building." She said, "But because of the way that you're addressing it, it was like I was watching someone down the road. I, c- I just I was just sitting there like, oh wow, God, he didn't leave me anything, did he?" And she was going, "No." Like she was like, obviously knowing, working with me, going, "No." I was like, I was literally talking to her. Like I was watching it as a film of somebody else. And it didn't catch up with me until I think around 2013, mentally when it caught up on me. Um so obviously watching all of this was before he'd been sentenced. Okay, so we're still in Romanda at this point of time. And um obviously did the the statement that they wanted me to do, because after the diary. The anger was just beyond. I think that, that before that, I was very protective of him, still scared and terrified that he was going to kill himself. And then, seeing that diary, was like, "You are some seriously cold character."
0: Was that, that was that the moment where it detached you from that loyalty, yeah. the yeah. brainwashedness yeah. of?
1: Yeah, and I was still very much brainwashed right up until that moment. That moment was like somebody had just cut the knife. You know, cut. Cut the cord and gone. Wow! Um, And all of a sudden, I was like, "I'll make that statement, and I'll say exactly what." Yeah, I I was. I was. I was. I don't know. It was just. And I think, looking back, you know, I'm so glad I did it because I don't know where I'd be now that he's out in this world, living his life normal now.
0: Oh, we're gonna get to that. That's gonna just right. Yeah.
1: Um. Had I not been able to cut that cord because I was very, very loyal and very groomed and very brainwashed and manipulated. And we all still were, all my family still were. I think even my husband to this day still struggles to even think about him as a, as a bad person. It, it really is it's so, you know, dysfunctional still because of how, you know, I don't think anybody would understand the power that he had over people. Um, so yeah, sentencing took place. Um, another drama in itself. That was because um, it was the f- I, I wanted to be in the room, um, and I was told I didn't need to be in the room. And I said, "No, I want I want to be there." And my husband was like, "If you're going in, I'm going in with you. You're not going alone."
0: Would this be the first time you saw him eye to eye? Yeah. Wow.
1: Yep. Since the day I said goodbye to him, have a great time in France.
0: Did he just accept guilt, or did he? Was there a trial?
1: There was no trial. At the beginning, he was um, saying it was a consensuous relationship. Um, And then I think he'd been given advice that once they'd got the black box and the evidence and everything, like, you've got no chance right now, so you need to plead guilty, basically. But he didn't plead guilty with, you know... Remorse <laughs> or intent. It was purely like save my backside because I think he'd been indicating to family members that oh, I'm only going to get a couple of years. I'm just going to get like two years. I'll be out and I'll be out in a year. Like don't worry about it. Kind of attitude. Um, so yeah, and obviously you know the the sentencing had been changed so many times. You know the dates constantly being cancelled and changed, and you name it. Oh, it was crazy. But eventually we got to the day, and uh, we got to the day where. We actually got in to go into the room because there'd be times we'd go to court and we'd be sitting, waiting, and they're saying, Right, no, it's been, it's been, you know, it's been changed, been rescheduled, whatever. The typical, you know, stuff that happened. But yeah, I went in to the sentencing and I sat there throughout it all.
0: When your eyes first met, what what was that like?
1: Well, he came in behind me. So where we were sitting, he, he came in from the top. So the way that they had positioned us was we were facing the judge. So they were like the seating area here and the police were sitting here at the side and the judge was in front. And then we had obviously the cameras on me to, to watch me because the judge was very, very, he was an outstanding judge. And he was very conscious of my, not my stability, but he's very conscious of how I'd managed this whole entire uh, process That I think for many of them were quite shocking. It was as if they're saying, she's going to break at some point. When is she going to break? (laughs) Like, you know, this girl has been like, you know, involved in the investigation. She's helped us with everything. She's come and sat in the police station. She, you know, I was dealing with my mum's bills and phoning up people, telling him that he was in prison. Like, it was just, I was just literally leading, you know? And I think they were, the judge was concerned at like, which point is she going to break, you know? And at which point have we got to safeguard? you know and protect her future so they the way that they'd positioned us was quite strange actually and um yeah so he walked he walked in behind me and was sitting right at the top of the back of the room
0: so he was positioned on a back row was he yeah was right he, was at the he top. stood or seated seated so he would be with his lawyer up there yeah and then you were several rows in front down yeah you were at the very bottom. Yeah. And you had all the protection of people around you and everything. Mm. That and the police down at the and side. Like, oh, lawyers. Mm. Um So in order to see him You'd have to crank your head. And did you do that? And what, yeah. what was going through your head at the moment you did that?
1: I wanted to see my dad. I think I wanted to see um that man that I could remember as a kid, like you're my dad, you love me. And I know you didn't mean to hurt me. You know, I'm still... Because with child sexual abuse, you're still an adult living like a child, you know? And there's moments where you go, what I call, you know, into your inner child. You go back into your inner child self. And I think at that moment, um, because I remember holding my husband's hand and wanting to look at him and go like, that's my dad. And I just remember turning and looking up and seeing just this cold look in this man I didn't even recognise him
0: Was he looking at you? Yeah like just. So there was eye contact Just
1: like that Just full blown angry just cold face and I didn't realise that my husband had also looked but after me so we discussed this afterwards and I said to him did you look at him? and he went yeah I did look at him
0: was your husband next sat next to you at that? Yeah, point? Yeah, sat next
1: to me, and I said, "What what point did you look at him?" And he went. He goes, "I can't remember at what point I looked at him." He said, "But yeah, I looked at him." I said, "And what did you feel like? Did you feel that was the man that like has been in your life for all these years?" And he was like, "No, don't know who he was." And do you know what worried me, Sean, was I sat there and I, I thought, "That's the unfiltered." person the monster doesn't face. need to hide anymore
0: Yeah,
1: and that scared me more than anything that I've ever been through in my life because it was like I don't know who you are now because you haven't got that look of prote- overprotective father all of a sudden you've just sat there a completely new person
0: did he pretend to be remorseful to the judge
1: no and I don't know what happened because he had an opportunity to write a letter. I don't know if that's standard procedure. They get an opportunity before they go into court to say something or speak You can speak say something or, or write. Write,
0: a, write a letter, Judge, or you can have people write on your behalf as well. Right. Did any family members stand up for him? No. Because if I had a brother and he'd done that, I would be the first to put a gun to his head.
1: Well, his brother was visiting him in prison right up until the day he's been released. But the judge did mention about the letter that he'd he'd written him. Okay. And actually turned around and said, your letter was so vile that if I could sentence you to life and actually worse, I would do that right now. This is what I'm talking
0: about. A good judge... In a Had his F- hands up tied, system yeah. that wanted to give this guy life, that he, he should have been doing life. Yeah, what but, is going on in the world? Right. Yeah,
1: and it got gets worse in that sense of sentencing because what happened? We so let's you know, long. Not, I'm not going to go through the whole sentencing, but what they said, what he did. But let's just say, this judge, the things that he said to me broke my heart. You know, he he was there as a father talking. To me, you know, um, so what happened was he wanted to adjourn it.
0: The judge wants to adjourn yeah. it,
1: so all of a sudden, you can imagine that like, you can, gone on, I don't know how long we'd been in there for. What was the maximum honest. he
0: was facing for those charges at that well, point? This is
1: why he wanted to adjourn it, yeah. So I don't know what was going on because you got a little secretary going, like, trying to type as fast as she could, bless her, and him passing messages here, there, and everywhere. And I think what it was is what he said. So he wanted to adjourn it, and I remember the police officers looking at me going, like, and I don't know what I did at that moment of time. I don't know whether I cried or I, I did something at the thought of be, adjourning it because it was so intense being in this room. He was talking about adjourning and all of a sudden, with his, you know, hammer thing, bang! And turned around and goes, I'm not adjourning because of her. And I can't put her through another night of this. That's the only reason I'm not adjourning. And he turned and said, and he looked at him. He said, you've got no remorse. He said, you are a vile human being that has destroyed an innocent childhood and life. Um, and he just, he just said the most beautiful things about me, most horrific things about him. And, and do you know what he said? He said, and I've sat here trying to get a sentence that justifies. And you're a very, very lucky man. Because the maximum I can give you is 10 years.
0: Of what you do Half. That's absolutely ridiculous. With
1: your 20, 221 days of reprimand taken off. Oh, my
0: God. Out in three something.
1: So he actually sat there and said, Whoa. that's why I wanted to adjourn it to see what else I could get in terms of sentencing guidelines. That's what I thought. But I can't put her through it. And you know yourself that this is historical child abuse. So they got him for the drugs. They got him for um, forfeiture of equipment because there was so much equipment involved. Added to the list of the sentencing. Um, So they added a little bit on for that, a little bit for the drugs, a little bit for this, a little bit for that, and tried to add as much as they they physically could within their power. But actually, I remember the judge turning around and saying to me, um, forfeiture of all equipment and the diary will never ever be able to get into anybody's hands to he said because I don't want it in anyone's hands ever police whoever nobody because you know and at that point you know I never thought I would talk about it so you know I took the anonymity I took everything you know um in actual fact to the point where when we were trying to when I decided to speak out was they couldn't find nothing on this story and to the point where my journalist was like did this actually even take place? It's only because we had to get the authority from the judge, you know, for the, the, um, to waive my anonymity, that actually she was like, oh, it did exist then. But you couldn't find nothing on it, Sean. You can't find any of the information requests, nothing.
0: Did you ever access the letter he wrote to the judge?
1: No. No, everything was taken, everything was done for. for just, so he's, he was sentenced to 10 years, yeah.
0: Pathetic. Yeah. If people watching this work in the system... And you aren't convinced now that it's upside down. I just urge people in the system to take this to heart because you're the ones who can lobby the people at the top to make these changes. Yeah. There are so many good people working in the system. You said about the good judge, good cops, good prosecutors, trapped in this system whereby you this guy who deserved life who just made a mockery, who God knows what he's put in that letter to the judge, just made him just. Probably did that knowing hmm. that he was going to walk, basically, yeah. after three more something years.
1: Well, he walked after six. Six. And the reason he walked after six is because 2015, 16 and 17, three paroles, they refused outright. Because he had not re- re- rehabilitated, He had not. he was too high risk.
0: So he learned to pretend... He learned how to play the system there eventually.
1: Oh, he played the system very well. That's why I ended up speaking out because he played the system so well that the system is what created my speaking out. And do you know why? Because whilst he was in prison, he was still getting cards to my son, birthday cards, etc., etc., which he wasn't allowed to. So he still had. He he knew the system very well.
0: Did he have rapists delivering those?
1: No, they were just being put in the post. But how they were getting in the post when he wasn't allowed access to to anything. Anyway, so parole's coming up. I'm trying to rebuild my life. I've moved different places. I've changed my name. Everything in my life has become different. I've moved out of the country. I've moved back into the country. And I start obviously working with victims of abuse, sexual violence. And I'm working really hard and I don't get paid for what I do. You know, the the standard, typical, you know... But nobody knew why I did what I did. And I became very popular very quickly because I was very passionate and I knew what I was doing and I was, you know, lived experience, but nobody knew I was lived experience. And then 2050, there was no real protection for me as a victim, to be honest. Um, And because of who I am, I managed to protect myself in many ways. Um, My victim support officer... It was only me getting in contact with them two years later saying, where have you been for the last two years? Do you want to let me know about my father? Because I think we're coming up for parole now, aren't we? And them going, oh, my God, has nobody ever been in touch with you? No. Oh, my God, emergency, emergency. Getting someone to then come and visit me, you know, and I'm having to chase them, you know? Like, you know, we're in 2014 now. I think next year, maybe we're up for something. Anyway, parole came, was refused. Oh, no. And I remember just before this happened, before even a year before, no, one year after I think he'd been sentenced, 2012, 2013, my granddad passed away. And I had no intention to go to the funeral. I disconnected in 2013 from every part of that family altogether. And I remember getting the phone call from the prison and saying, or probation, whoever it was, saying, "Um, are you planning to go to the funeral? Because your father would like to go. But obviously we need to know whether you're going to be there. So I was like, he can go. I'm not going. So the next thing I know, I'm getting family members threatening me, threatening to, to uh, you know, come, come to my home. And I'm like, what are these threats for? And they're like, you've stopped. Uh, I hope you can live with yourself that you've stopped your father from going and saying goodbye to his father. And I'm like, I haven't stopped nothing. I've told him he can go. So then Croatian called me back. Because I'm ringing them, the police saying, why am I getting threats from family members? I've authorised it. And they're like, we aren't letting him out even to go and visit. We, that, that's how he was. We're not letting him even go to the funeral. We are not allowing it. Good. Because there's stuff that he does inside these cells that we know we can't trust him to be at that funeral.
0: What's he doing in the cells?
1: Who knows? So parole comes around 2015, 2016, 2017. Three paroles outright no. Now, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a, a police probation, I work in the prison system, but I'm kind of assuming after my research that if you don't get authorised for parole, that's because you're not really a good man, <laughs> right? Yeah. Or you haven't been a good man in prison, you know, you know your stuff, Sean. I'm kind of yeah. guessing that yeah, you've got to
0: you've got to go do the courses, not get disciplinary tickets, behave yourself, and show remorse and get up up and learn. to... Sh- you've seen Shawshank Redemption where they won't let him out year after yeah. year. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to show remorse.
1: You got you've got you've to gotta show that you're, I guess, safe enough to come up for and coming out. I imagine right? there's
0: certain courses sex offenders have got to do and comply with this shit. Mm. Yeah.
1: Right. So anyway. We get to 2017, 2018, and I get the phone call. And they say to me, we're really sorry. His release is imminent. Now, during this time of of the parole, they'd put protection on us. So We were living in Wales, in Swansea. We'd moved over there, and they could protect the border. So, obviously, his licensing conditions when he was coming out was he can't, Originally, they were just going to try and protect a local area, but they'd actually got the whole of Wales approved, so he couldn't even cross the border. Good. He couldn't even get into Wales, uh, which was fantastic. But they said, they said, oh, so he releases him, and, and, you know, you'll have six months. I said, so after six months, how are you going to protect me? Because six months isn't a very long time. Right? He's already done six years, and that's just flown by.
0: This is someone who's spent his life... Coming up with clever ways to do horrendous things to you. Mm.
1: Right. And had now, Sean, spent six years in a cell as an unfiltered man, coming up with God knows what, with plenty of time on his hands, mixing with plenty of people.
0: Other sexual deviants.
1: Was now coming out. And actually, I felt more unsafe than I did when I was being abused by him. Because at least when he was in my life, I knew where he was. I knew he was around the corner. I knew, I knew certain levels of him. I knew that he was still trying to care for me in his own manipulative, weird way. Now this man's coming out completely unfiltered. And who is he? Actually, who is he now? Because I, I don't know. And I don't know what kind of you know person he's become. And I remember my victim's voice saying, well, he'll probably just sit and have his roast dinner on a Sunday. Really? (laughs) Like he used to do back back before when he was fitting the light sockets and fitting the transmitters. he would just sit and have his Sunday roast dinner now. He's missed life. (laughs) This is the the mentality that that you're dealing with, you know. Anyhow, um, I just got ready for his release. And I don't know what came over me because I've never... Googled his name in the whole six years he'd been in prison. Never even tried to find out his prison number. I'd never tried to do anything. And all of a sudden, I Googled his name. And beyond me, his name comes straight up the top of Google. And it says, um, he says his name and then it said, been set on fire in prison.
0: He'd been set on fire.
1: No, his name was involved in the, 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 art, the, the name at the top in the headline. And I'm thinking, oh, my God. Oh, my God. i actually then thinking, how is he coming out if he's been set on fire in prison? So I've opened it. It's on the Chronicle, on, on the Chronicle on, which has now been removed, funny enough, because I went out on a massive campaign about it, because this is how the story got out. So I'm reading it, just scrolling down, scrolling down, sweating, thinking my heart's going, thinking, oh, my God, he's dead. He's dead. He's dead. And then it says person who set himself on fire in prison my father was the trained Samaritan support listener for him so he my father was giving evidence to how their death come about he couldn't make it up you could not make it up so there's me on the outside world Supporting survivors, supporting victims, working really hard in the third sector charity world, not, you know, not earning an income, just doing it from passion, lived experience. And I'm not even in the news. (laughs) I'm not even at the top of Google. And there he was, a trained Samaritan listener in prison as part of the prison project. So he was given his evidence on what had happened when he had spoken to him and etc. Right. So there he was. And again, you cut the cord. As you cut the cord that day with the the diary, you cut the cord. Then I got in contact with journalists and said, "I've got a story." <laughs> <laughs> Do you want it? <laughs> <laughs> Literally. <laughs> and then that was it.
0: What year was that again? Um, two thousand eighteen. Because wow. he was
1: released in twenty eighteen. He was released in May twenty eighteen. And I originally hoped my story would go out as he was released the same month. But unfortunately because there was so uh, much legalities with my um, anonymity and my judge that it took much longer for the story to go out. So the story didn't go out until September. Okay. So he was released in May, and then my story went out in September.
0: I just need to go back over some something that I asked you earlier because when all the blood ran out of my body and it froze,
1: <laughs> and you froze
0: when I froze—that's never happened in a in one of the podcasts before. I literally froze. Um, I believe I was asking you about the, the initial conversation of when you told your husband about the sexual abuse. Yeah. What What was that conversation like?
1: Do you know what? For me, it was fear.
0: And where were you? Was it over the phone? Or were you, in, were you? No, it was him? in
1: Tunisia. It was face to face. Okay. And I just stood there and I just, he's, he's holding on to me and I'm shaking and screaming and, and he's just like, you know, what is it? What is it? It doesn't matter what it is. And I'm, you know, he must have just said it. What
0: point of the story was that? Was, did, had you come back from the UK after? You- no,
1: this is when we got the phone call.
0: The fo- from the from phone the call. Police. From yeah, the phone so from call. the
1: phone call. He's there. He's in front of me. We're on holiday. He's like, what the heck's going on? And that's when I just stood there and said, he's been arrested. And do you know what? It was interesting because when I talked to my husband about afterwards, he was like, he said, I said to him, you didn't react the way I was expecting you to react, like freaked out, shocked. He goes, for some reason, it didn't shock me. Like, it shocked me. It hurts me. It pains me. I want to kill him. But because your family situation was so warped and so dysfunctional, it was kind of like, Ah, now it all makes sense. You know, you know that p- missing piece. Like me, when I was went to the.
0: So what? What did you actually say <laughs> to him prior to him saying that?
1: I just said he's been arrested. He'd abused me as a kid. He would sexually abused me as a child. So obviously, when we were having the discussions, leading back to come back to the UK, I was saying to him, he was like, he kind of questioned it, but didn't want to know too much. I think he, the shock was so imperative, like it was ridiculous. But and I just said to him, you know, he was like, "Do you remember?" I said, "I just remember being young." I remember the abuse. I remember what he did. I said, and then as far as I was concerned, you know, for me, it was like when I left the house at 15, that was it. I was free. I said, and then obviously, you know, everybody knew he was a stalker and whatever. And he was, and he said, well, yeah, I know all of that part because I've been through it with you and I've watched him beat you and all the rest of it. So, so as he turned around and said was you was an innocent little child, you know, and we've got a child and, and, you know, I couldn't even imagine what you've been through. So he was just my support network, but like I said, you know, to a certain degree because the more that I found out. So what happened was my husband would come to the family home when the police were raiding and stuff. But when it was stuff like what I've talked to you about with the video and stuff, I wouldn't allow him to come because it and it's not that he didn't want to, it's just because I couldn't cope with it myself. And I'm like, how are you going to cope with this? And actually, my husband was so, so supportive that after my father had been sentenced, I wanted to rebuild my relationship with my (coughs) mum. So I asked my husband, can we go and live there? Can we move back in the house so I can be with my mum? And he didn't want to. Obviously, he was like, this is the biggest mistake of our lives. And I was like, you know, I was begging him. I was like, please, I need to rebuild this relationship with mum. This is my only chance. And he goes, all right. So we gave up our house. And um, we were renting anyway. We moved in with mum, and within six months we were out because she had no intention of being the mum that I craved and I, lo- I loved really. Um, and that's when that's when the pieces really fitted together for me. That everybody had their play, their part to play in it, and nobody wanted w- to accept. Did it. she
0: know everything that had happened? Yeah. Doesn't that make her a co-conspirator and liable for some criminal consequence? It did,
1: but at the time, you see, this is the thing, though, Sean, because at the time when they had spoken to her about it, um, I truly believed that she didn't know. And it was only years and years afterwards, around 2013, when I started to see the coldness in her. and she, you know, And I started to see that, actually, I don't know what role you played in this, but you did not protect me.
0: So you, I mentioned I, I work with a guy who goes on the dark web um, called Ron Swanson. she shout out to him. We usually do a live stream on Friday nights when I'm not on the road. And one of the areas he's explored is pedo parents who yeah. have children specifically for the, these things to happen. Mm. Do you believe there was an agreement like that? Prior? No, I,
1: I don't with her. What I believe, based on the letter that I'd found that she had written to him, was that when she started to feel like her love was being lost, that's when she was like, do, you know, make the, made a sacrifice, basically.
0: And how old were you at that point, do you know?
1: No, because the letter was dated, I think, a couple of years after I'd been born and the marriage was breaking down. And all she put in the letter was, you know, please don't ever leave me. And, it, you know, the letter was so desperate. And the backstory I, I learned over time... And even through my father, he used to talk to me about this army girl, the army girl, right, who he was madly in love with. And he'd sit there and, and say to me, you know, and the, he'd, t- he'd t- tell me about her.
0: The someone that he'd raped? Yeah.
1: But I just knew it was the army girl. Because that's who he, you know, because when I, you know, you're, you know, when your kids, you're 16, and you fall in love with somebody, you go home, and you're broken hearted because you're falling out with your, 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 you know, friends or whatever at school. And I remember him sitting there saying to me, oh, you know, telling me about this story, this army girl. I just know it was the army girl. That's who I knew her as. And he was in love with her. And then whatever happened between them. And then he met my mum. And I remember my cause I used to interrogate so many of my family members during this period of time. I wanted to know everything. I wanted to know how the hell has all this come about. And so much of it that none of you had a clue. You know, you opened the drawer and the drugs were sitting there. You know, when I was when I was sorting out the house after he'd been sentenced, I was finding everything. I was opening the drawer, it was there, I was opening that, I was there, and I was like, You lived with him. You you cleaned this house. You know, how would you never see any of this stuff? You know, how did you not know anything? You know? It was just it was is it's not possible, you know. And I spoke to my um, you know, a lot of my family members and my one of my family members, she said to me, Your mum was so obsessed with your father. He was she he was she was infatuated by him and she knew that she could never get the love that he'd had from this you know, or the love that he'd put onto somebody else.
0: So he used the army girl to make her jealous.
1: Yeah, and um, and then there was the comment that was made that, and when you were born, he didn't show love for your mum anymore. So me and my mum had this very unloving, cold relationship. And obviously now I know why, because the minute I was born, his love was passed to me, so she felt neglected, pushed out as a mother, you know and even even to you know the comment that she made to my my husband um which was the turning point for me why I've had no contact with her since 2013 because she and she goes just completely naturally Tarana said to my husband well how would you feel if you've just found out that she'd had an affair my husband went crazy was like you've not just found out that your 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 husband has had an affair you've just found out that your husband has sexually abused and raped and done most disgusting stuff to your daughter separate this concept, but she you know and sometimes you'd think is she is she just so brainwashed by him and manipulated and crazy, or is she actually soulless soulless and and that is what she is, and I came to that conclusion in two thousand and thirteen that actually you are completely soulless whoa, so he's out now.
0: <sighs> all right before we get to that then um so you had that conversation with him but you only knew so much at that point yeah did you have to have another conversation with him
1: yeah we've had loads of conversations like I said I don't go into lots and lots of detail about it but we you know we have like the basic conversation where he's been supportive you know when I've had my breakdowns when I've struggled um
0: how did he react when you told him the full extent when you knew everything
1: yeah, well, that was the thing. You say, when when the when all the drugs and the keys and everything started coming, I think he did what I did and put it into some kind of like crime crime video or or film. Do you know what I mean? And just yeah. kind of like kind of put it all like it was somebody else. Yeah, I honestly think that that's the way that we've 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 dealt with it. And but then I obviously over the years there's been times where I've had that that catch up.
0: It's like everyone involved in this has had to compartmentalise at some point.
1: Literally. It's just
0: so extreme.
1: Literally, kind of, and sometimes quite professionally put it away. You know, sometimes even when I used to talk about, when I I first started, you know, when I first went to the journalist, I was like, I've got a story for you. That was like, I I remember she said to me that when she first started to speak to me, I was so cold and short with the answers myself that she couldn't get into me and it took it took a long time for me to actually become um quite vulnerable about it and quite emotional
0: it was too raw you've gone through, yeah. through various stages of she was the just getting that
1: very like professional format of it I remember I said to her look I don't really need to talk about it and I actually emailed her with a bullet point so that she could write up the story. And she was like, you're not writing the story for me. <laughs> I'm a journalist. I need to get a, like, I actually wrote, like, this is all you need to write in the story. There's your bullet points. This is the bits that you need to, and she was just like, what? that's not That's not how it works. Yeah. Like.
0: <laughs> all right, so this is going to piss people off now. So he gets released. So yeah. he's got this monster at large. And he's got the support of family members still.
1: Um... Possibly support of some family members. Um, when he, he came, he was released. Obviously, I released my story and I set up two campaigns. So I did the first petition, which is still um, running over in Wales in the Senate, which is the one that I won the Queen's Award for.
0: Um,
1: uh-huh. So there was one. I set up one that was to get child um, refuge for victims of child sexual abuse. Now, like we have domestic violence shelters and refuges, we don't have anything for children to run to. So that was my first campaign, and I took that to the Synod in, in Wales in Cardiff, and that's actually still going through at the moment. It's still in discussion. That's been going through now since 2019. Um, and I set up another petition for sentencing guidelines and how he was out. And, you know, it was, it was on my website. Sub so petitions and the sentence guidelines need to be changed. And also, I did another petition because when he was released, he was allowed the knowledge of where I was because of his licensing conditions. And I wasn't allowed the knowledge of where he was.
0: <sighs> Broker system.
1: So, and under um, Sarah's law, you know, like where you can ring up and find out if somebody's a paedophile or if they've got sex offending behaviour, I wasn't entitled to that because... He's my father. I know that he's got sex offending on his record. So I'm not allowed. And because basically I went through every system for six months, probation, MAPA, you name it, Maca like team, every team. I, I, and actually the probation officer said to me, I know what you're trying to do and I know, and I wish I could tell you where he, the area of his. And I, and you know what? I didn't want it for vigilante. I, I don't, uh, and this was my petition that I put to the government, which didn't, didn't pass clearly and obviously. So I didn't do the petition and the, the campaign, which I'm still running because I want vigilante movements to find him. Right. Which is why they will say that we can't let you know where he is because the vigilante um I I don't want to. I want to know where he is. Not Does, his does he have a new
0: identity now and all that stuff? I'm the, assuming he must. Go. I, did the media originally release his name? Yes. Say this is the monster of blah yeah. blah blah. Yeah, so, he's so had he to would go have into some kind of protection.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so where he was moved to, he was then moved to somewhere else. So he first came out, and was put in like the, that residential hostel that they go into to build them back into the society, and then he got moved again, right? So I was I wanted to know his his vicinity. Yeah. And I would say to probation, I don't want his address and I don't want his postcode, but I want his vicinity. And they'd say to me, Mayor, I know you do. And we know why. However, you know, we can't. And there was no law. I tried every sneaky area, avenue and law. And people say to me, I still debate with people now. And and I'm sure many of you will be thinking, well, yeah, because the vigilante movements and you want it because you want to go and kill him. You want to attack him and you want this. No. Do you know what? I genuinely don't. Just the same as if you was to access the law. So you you had a concern, right, Sean? So you're living there. You see this guy moving, and you think, don't trust him. Think, and he, and he's playing with your kids, and he's got a really good kid bond with your kids, and whatever. And you do you go through the um, the service law, and you say, I need information. The police will make a discretion to come to you and give you the that information, right? There is a law, okay? Um, it's not accessed, and and it's probably not used to its best ability. Um, but they won't give you that information because they believe you're going to go on a vigilante against that person. They're doing it because they're like, yeah, you need to keep your children right, away from it. So there is a law that, again, like I said, very flawed, but that's not what I'm here to, you know, debate. Um, so you could do that and the police can use the discretion to give you that information of, of if, if if he's got sex offending. Right. But I'm not allowed as a victim to know the area that that my father is living in. So it's acceptable that if I decide to get my kids and go to Kent for the day, he could be sitting beside me. So I could go down to the beach, right? Come on, kids. Now, bearing in mind, two of my kids don't know who he is, but my first son does know who he is, yeah? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he knows what my kids look like, clearly, because if he stalked me for like a portion of like nearly 30 years of my life or 20 or however many years of my life, then he knows exactly what my kids look like. He knows exactly where they are. He knows their names. He knows everything about them. So if I was to know that, OK, he's um South whatever, I can honestly say I will not take my kids to that area because I want I'm a mother and I want to protect my children. Right. And I don't want his eyes Physically on my children. So I'm not out there to, to go on a vigilante uh, movement and, and get him killed, get him... I could have done that a long time ago with the work that I'm involved with, you know? But I think I feel like I have a right to know where he's located in the country so that I can make that freedom of choice to not go to that location. Because I don't know what's going to happen a day maybe or may never happen because that's why I spoke out was to protect my children. Because if you can't protect me and you can't tell me where he is, and I'm expected to now, after six months licensing conditions, where he can have a normal life and he can even come outside my house if he wanted to, because he's no longer under his licensing conditions, um, I want my kids and the people to know who he is. Because you can't protect me. So he can have access to me and my kids and my life, and my kids are not allowed to stay away from it. You know, like I said, I don't want to be going on, uh, on, down to the beach with my kids and he sat beside me giving me a wave or trying to talk to my son.
0: Did he get back with your mum?
1: Well, who knows, Sean?
0: Are you not allowed to know that?
1: Well, throughout the period of when he was sentenced to when he came out, she stayed in that house. She lived in that house und- and not divorced. Then when he was being released. Well, she visited
0: him all the time.
1: I don't know. But for me, because I used to say to her, sell the house, get get money, go go to France with your sister, have a life. Yeah? Just get away. Why would you stay in the same house that had the fitted light bulbs and the transmits and all that creepiness inside that house? Why would you live inside it and stay inside it? And she never did. The house was actually sold just as he came out
0: mm, so he got the money
1: oh he got the money yeah and the house went for a very good amount
0: so he's got money you don't know where he is he's capable of anything this is how insane the whole system is
1: and I'm supposed to just get on with my life because he's served his time for the crime and sleep at night with three kids <laughs>
0: And how does that make your husband feel, knowing that he's out there at large with money, with resources, capable of anything, and he's extremely clever and calculating?
1: Do you know what, right, Sean? I think we both had that fear whilst I was keeping the secret still. Because don't forget, if I hadn't have spoken out and I hadn't have waived my anonymity, he was coming out with nobody knowing anything. He was coming out with money from the house sale. Um with whatever support was being put in place for them through the, the prison system and me still a silent child. So I, don't, I, I think that me actually speaking out and making it as viral as I did, a Channel 5 documentary, the press, actually, I like to think is what's kept him away from us. I like to think that's, well, that's, what's, that's what's done it. I like to think that that's where I took my power back. So that I didn't have to live in fear and not be able to sleep at night, not know if I get in my car and it breaks down that he's going to turn up because that's the kind of things he used to do. So I'd, I'd, when I was like 16, I've got my first car, my car would break down and he'd just be magically there to fix my car for me. And then obviously, as I found out from the police, he would set these things up so that I always did need him. You know, there was that level of she He needs made your me. car break down. Yeah. So that I needed to rely on him. Wow. Couldn't get a job when I lived in the shoes. Why? Because he was hacking the email so that I couldn't get jobs because I needed to rely on him.
0: It's like obsessive compulsive disorder at, like, the nth degree with horrific paedophile. Has he been diagnosed with anything?
1: No, not from what I'm aware of. It's too yeah. clever, Sean. He was too intelligent.
0: Yeah. Do you
1: know what? I never forget when the police officer said to me, if he wasn't who he was... We'd have him. Yeah. We'd have him working for us. Yeah. She said that mindset.
0: Surveillance and everything.
1: Yeah, the mindset was... um, And that's why, you know, I released the story. I went pressed. There's a Channel 5 documentary. Um, I'm still to write the book and that's my closing that's going to be my my closing chapter i've never written the book and the book is where i'd go into this kind of detail that i've gone in with you i haven't gone into this this is more data than i've gone into even in other aspects of what i've shared and that's my closure but it wouldn't be as a book as like my biography it would be like a psychological thriller
0: based on things.
1: because what i want people who hopefully are watching this to know is that we see child sexual abuse as such a horrific, heinous crime, yeah, and and it is. But he, to me, goes beyond that level, because there's something up there, you know. And and my husband, I remember my husband, not not probably about a year ago, saying to me, "Are you are you why are you scared of him? Like, I'll kill him if he comes near us. Like literally, I'll take his life in my own hands if he comes near us." I said to him, "Do you know what?" I said to my husband. I'm not scared of him. He's coming out of prison now, what, 69, 70, however old. So I'm not scared of him. I'm scared of this. That's what I was scared of. I was not scared of him physically. I'm scared of this. Um, because I remember when he was released under his licence conditions and I remember getting a phone call. We got to love the phone calls from the police and the probation and all those and people. Every time I get a phone call, I go, here we go again. And... Um, No, it was my, I can't remember who it was, but they called me and they were just like, Are you okay? I was like, Yeah, I'm good, thank you. And they were like, Right, um, kids okay? Yeah, kids are fine. Should I not be okay? Should my kids not be okay? No, we're just letting you know that, you know, we're keeping track on your father, we're keeping track on who he's mixing with and this and that. But he has a curfew and um, hasn't returned yet, but we'll let you know if there's going to be any issues. And at the time, I'm thinking, you're calling me on my mobile phone. I could have a gun in the back of my head. And I'm going, yep, I'm fine. Kids are fine. Everything's great. You know, They don't come out and visit you to make sure you're okay. Is everything okay? Mm. And I was just like, this is just a whole nother level, you know? Mm. And And that's when, yeah, that's when I just went out with the story. I just thought enough is enough. Oh, yeah. I can't live yeah. like this, you know? And like I said, it's not about... It's it's more about the calculation. It's about the mindset. It was about um, the efforts that he went to to do what he did. Um, so we we I, I focus more on that now than I do of the actual kind of abuse. It's the mindset. I think that kind of that's probably what intrigued me the most. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, to be honest, when I was expecting to come home from Chinese and be like, Yeah, you, you, know, sorry to hear what you've been through child sexual abuse when you were young, and what do you remember when he's getting sentenced for it? You know, as 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 probably as cold as that sounds, that's kind of what I was expecting. Um, and then healing and going through my rape and abuse counselling and dealing with my childhood. You know, like that that was I I guess what I had in my mind. And then there was just more and, and all of that stuff.
0: So so I'm sure people watching this are thinking this exact same as me. How can we fix the system? How can we prevent this from happening? I mean, what, what can people do? I mean, what's. Well,
1: this is the issue that I have, Sean, because when I first launched all my petitions and my campaigns, and I won, I was awarded in October 2020 the BEM from the Queen, so the British Empire Medal, for my services um, to child victims. And when I first launched my campaigns, and I I was encouraging women and girls to speak out. But I very rapidly pulled that back because to speak out, you're not only risking not being believed and all of that stuff that comes with it, you're risking not being protected. And so until we can get movement... On one, the sentencing guidelines, but to the victim protection, because to to be of the mindset that, well, he's not—he's he, that's it now. He's coming out, and he's not going to touch you, or he's not going to come for you, he's not going to abuse you. It, it was historical. I'm sorry, they do not rehabilitate. I I I, I don't. You know, that is a, my personal opinion, and I know because I've had many discussions with those that work with sex offenders that will say that they run them through programs. But I'm sorry, for me, rehabilitation, yeah, is not, the, it does not work, right?
0: If that doesn't work, but a life sentence would have worked. Yeah. So what is standing and in the way? How, of-
1: how, how, how um, I can't think of the word, but how, how tricking is it to sit in court and hear 10 years?
0: And a judge say, my hands are tied.
1: But we hear as a victim, 10 years. What we don't hear is actually he'll serve half, 221 days of reprimand taken off because he's been in debt. Da-da-da, da da So actually he'll be out, in. We don't hear that bit. So you have a false sense of hope to rebuild your life in 10 years. But actually, I was um, fortunate because they kept him longer than that half of that sentence because of whatever he was up to in there, you know, and not meeting the parole conditions. But for many, many victims... They'll hear six years, and like you said, that they'll be serving too.
0: So, throughout this whole chain of events, then it seems a major problem is the judge's hands being tied. How do we untie the judge's hands? What, what's what's got to change? It's, it's
1: getting the knowledge into child sexual abuse because so many judges are not even trauma informed. You know, so when we look at trauma, and you know, a victim's going to not have that memory of what happened or she's going to piece it together slightly different, she's then, if, if there isn't evidence, if you've got to take away my, my story because my story was full of evidence. It's very, very rare, isn't it, that you get a, a child sexual abuse victim that's got evidence. All
0: the documentation. right?
1: Very often it's something gets said, something gets happened, and it's her word against whoever's whoever's done it. Yeah, so then they have to go through a trial, like you said. They have to go through a trial. They have to go through that humiliation. Now, if they sat there like me, trying to piece it all together and trying to work it all out, and had you know, had I have gone through a trial where I'm trying to remember, well, actually, I can't remember him doing that, but I remember him doing that. I can't remember that because, like you said, you've gone into survival mode. Mind and body have been detached. Now you're you're seeing a normalization of sex offenders. Right. But you're seeing the 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 disregard for victims speaking out, right? So if you see if you pick up a newspaper now and you see on the front page um sex offender I said it this morning just while I was sitting here waiting for you, Sean, you know, um sex offender just resentenced or whatever, um te- for five years, four years, right? We go, Oh god, another one. Not another one. So we've become so normalized to sex offenders and paedophiles. Yet I walk into a room (laughs) and because I've got so used to talking about my story now, but trust me, it was never like this before. I was the, I was the silenced child. I'll say, let's have the small talk. Yeah, let's talk about my story. Let's talk about child abuse. And they will go, oh my God, did she actually, did she just, did she just like, people don't want to talk about it. They don't, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to hear about it. Um, And they don't want to lower the mood of the conversation. It's it's not a it's not a conversation, but it's okay to pick up a newspaper and see that somebody's it's somebody's a paedophile, somebody's a sex offender, somebody's just been sentenced.
0: So you're saying that we can't. It's the system,
1: but it's also the way that we're normalising it. it.
0: it, It's so dark, society doesn't want to look at it, so it can't be fixed because we have to look at it properly to fix it. Is that what you're saying? We have to
1: have general like this platform open conversations where we're not shocked that oh my god. She's actually talking about that story. You know, um, the more that w- the more that we can talk about and utilise platforms for victims and survivors, the more normal that will become. And the more shocking it will become when someone's being sentenced to just three years for raping or abusing children.
0: Because be pe- the more normalised... should be normalized... people on the street outside those courts saying... Right. Life sentence, life sentence, life sentence. Right, because
1: what we've done is we have sat back and we've got so used to, oh, he's just got three years for abusing that child. Oh, he's just got three years for murdering and sexually, you know, assaulting that child. Oh, three years. Nobody's going, that's an absolute outrage, like you just said, that needs to be stopped. What on earth are we living? But yet for me to speak out, I had to prepare myself mentally for months. Do you know why? Because I was scared of being shamed. I was scared of the stigma. I was scared that professionally I wouldn't be, you know, seen as a professional, which actually happened because I was now seen as a service user. So I had, as a victim, all of that to consider just to speak out and share a story that should be having an emotional reaction for people and getting that movement behind it rather than you reading in the newspaper that someone's been... You know, done for pedophilia, and you just go, oh God, another one that that you know, it is completely warped we we've, we've crossed we've crossed the lines that I'm walking around with the stigma and the shame because I've spoken out about it, and yet my father's walking around living his life doing whatever he's doing, and I'm still holding on to his sentence. I've got his life sentence he hasn't got it you know I'm sure he's not sitting there crying at night over his over his dinner, you know, worried about his kids.
0: And is it this massive injustice that persists, whereby these monsters are getting slaps on the wrist and they're getting their lives right back after a couple of years? Has well, they that, get they had, get
1: their identity changed. Like you said, they get protected. He gets supported housing when he first came out. He got moved to an area where I have no idea where he is.
0: Sometimes they get on canal boats, according to one ex-cop in London, and they just move around jurisdiction. So they've got so many days to register you're a sex offender. They just move to a new...
1: Yeah, well, that's the other thing. After the licensing conditions came to an end... Um, I mean, don't forget his sentence is 2021. That's when it ends. We're in 2021 now. He's been out since 2018. He's served from 2018 to 2021, the remainder of his sentence, out in, in society. He should still be in prison.
0: Do you think then that it's this massive injustice that has led to the rise of the vigilante groups?
1: Well, again, see, this is where the, the you have the issues because the vigilante groups have got are doing what they're meant to be doing, but at the same time, it hinders, doesn't it, the prosecutions? So sometimes it actually hinders. You know, somebody, this is why I get women saying to me, "I want to name and shame." I'm like, "Not yet. Don't do it yet," because if you name and start shaming before you've actually been to sentencing, then it can actually affect your the sentencing. You know, and you, you've we've had cases where the paedophile and the sixth one has sued them for slander and libel and different things because there was never any um, lead up to the sentencing leader. It was NFA, et cetera. So you have to be very careful. And this is where, you know, the vigilante thing, it's like, I get it. But at the same time, you know, like there's massive, it's a massive flaw, isn't it? Because, you know, I look back now and I think, had I have known, you know, Ten years ago that I was going to speak out, would I have even taken the on it? Would I have spoken out there and then, you know? But it, I was pushed to a point where I had to because of the system, because he was trained as a Samaritan worker. And don't forget that one week before that, I'd sat in the Samaritan's office talking about my work with victims. And at the same time, the same organisation are doing prison projects, which, again, I'm not here to say whether that's right or wrong. But on the counterbalancing of of who's suffering the most, you know, it, so, it doesn't make sense.
0: So another option we've been discussing on this channel is chemical castration. So let's hypothetically go back in time and say, all right, he did this thing. Absolutely
1: chemical castration. He, Absolutely. Uh, ar- army
0: army girl, as he phrased her, that he, he raped that person, actually. Um, imagine if he'd have been chemically castrated at that point. Perhaps this would not have happened.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I still believe that that is the only option, Sean, because um, the urges and that need, you know, okay, for for, for my father in particular, we, we're not talking about that mindset, but we're still talking about the perversion that he's got. You know, there would be times where, um, you know, I'd, I'd walk down the stairs and he's masturbating to watching a porno film sitting in the front room. Do you know what I mean? And like, you know, you're a kid walking around, you know, they don't, you know, there's not that level of um, dignity. Of course, it doesn't even exist, does it? So yeah, absolutely. What what other option do people have? When did your mum
0: in the room when he was doing stuff like that? No. So, you know, we've got this mission then, get these resources and go after the predators. So we need to be lobbying then for longer sentences, life oh, sentences. Massively. The judges' Victim hands have protection. got to be untied. We need to explore chemical castration. Have, have you got? We need obviously far more protection for the survivors. Have, have you got any other?
1: And we need to continue the child uh, refuge because that's. Do you know why that's not gone through? Why and why it wasn't approved? Um, straight why, why why we've never been able to really get a child refuge because one they they say that it can't so it can't be a protected space so how comes a domestic violence survivor can go to a women's refuge and it'll be a protected space right you still run a risk of the perpetrator looking for her so the the big organisations again which are also very flawed her tone said, if you put young kids or have a place where they can go to as, in a refuge, then you're allowing paedophiles to be able to like navigate towards them. Yeah. There is no logic in that for me at all because that's why then have we got domestic violence shelters for women, but we can't have child sexual abuse shelters for
0: kids. Are domestic violence centres so run by women? Yes. So you'd have the same for kids. Yeah. But there are, most paedophiles are men. Yeah. yeah, that's
1: that's the statistics. Yeah.
0: yeah.
1: And don't forget as well, Sean, that the, the signs and symptoms of children um, are being missed. Okay? They're just naughty kids at school. They're kids that are getting excluded. They're kids that have concentration problems. They're kids that have learning disabilities. They're kids that have ADHD. They're not kids that are being recognised for the signs and symptoms of what's happening in their household, right? So we've got that other issue. Now... As like myself, which is why my my child house petition only got two hundred signatures, but it got pushed through, and it 's still being discussed today. Why because the person who who took that petition from me invited me in to ask me, what is this that i'm doing, why am I so passionate about it? and I told him my story, and he pushed they passed it through, and it got passed in motion in the Senate last year
0: Brilliant.
1: right with just 200 signatures nothing gets done with 200 <laughs> signatures right um but it's because you've you've only got to understand the concept and the logic behind it and turn around going why have we not done this for years right because the the most common um thing that a child's going to do is try and run away right now i ran away I ran away when I was very young um, and I remember it very well because I remember sitting on the train, bunk the train ticket and I remember the train um, officer coming over saying, where's your train ticket? Didn't get it. Young girl, please get me. Hand me back to my family, Mm -hmm. right? Because I'm not going to disclose. Now, we've got lots of NSPCC um, posters everywhere for Child Helpline. Where can they go? It's not just about making a phone call. Where can they physically go? There is nowhere physically for them to go. So I'm not discrediting the phone lines and the helplines, but where are the kids going to go? You're going to make a safeguarding call, so you're going to get the the social services or the safeguarding team involved, who are going to go to the house to speak to the parents, the same parents that are sexually abusing them. Then the child's going to be in fear. If you've got enough evidence, you're going to remove the child, but that's very, very uncommon. Because if it was so common that there was evidence laying around the house, then we wouldn't have paedophiles anyway. And if the sentencing guidelines were so strong, paedophiles wouldn't be acting the way that they're acting now. Because I do believe that now they have more access to do what they do, with less less comeback. We've had guests. If, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you, I'm sorry, Sean, but if you look at someone and you read in there, oh, he got three years for paedophilia. Oh, he didn't get much, did he? and you're a paedophile.
0: No deterrent. It's that idealisation no again, deterrent. isn't it? We've had guests come on and say pedophiles join the church because they know they're going to get the high-priced lawyers are going to come in and they're going to get them. Yeah. Very light sentences. Hmm? That's how out of control. It is.
1: Yeah.
0: And it's 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 sad as well because a lot of kids when they get removed from the families then they get abused in care.
1: Yes, that's that's the next thing that you've <sighs> got. That's the next you thing solve that you've it? got. Exactly
0: out of the chip pan into the frying pan
1: yeah and that's the other issue that you've got is that where where can children go that are actually safe you know and and how do they even know where to go
0: because then you get the predators joining social services to access those kids
1: yeah as you do in schools with teachers schools.
0: yeah yeah
1: yeah. Massive institution, institutional abuse, isn't it? It's massive at the moment.
0: And what what ends up happening? It, it, it's it's a it's a bad thing. Criminality in prison. Nearly everyone in prison has been abused as a kid. Yeah. So then they get on drugs because yeah. they've got no way to deal with the trauma. Yeah. And then to finance the drugs, the men go into thieving and drug dealing, and the women go into sex work. Exactly. We just see it over and over and over again. Yeah.
1: And, and do you know what, Sean? I cannot tell you the amount of people who. I've interviewed me and gone. So, have you ever done sex work? And I say no. Never begun, drug. You didn't. You're not a drug addict. No. How the hell are you lying? What, what, what did you do then, <laughs> right? How, how, how are you still standing? Because they're they. And this is the issue, isn't it? Because
0: you met a good man early right? on,
1: exactly. And also statistics. I was very. I grew up saying, no matter what. I will make sure I have a career. i make sure I do good in my life. And um, But statistics, they wanted me to be another number. And that's the other issue we've got. So when we look at homeless people on the streets, we just write them off, you know? And we're so quick to say to people, you know, what's wrong with you, but not what's happened to you.
0: Yes, yes. What's
1: wrong with you? Why do you end up on the streets? Why are you a drug addict? What's wrong with you? But not what's happened to you? Because I could have been there. I could have been one of them, you know? I'm not saying I'm any better because I've had my struggles. You know, my my issue was with anger, you know, and it, it could have landed me in very dangerous, dangerous places. You know, being a, being violent myself and being angry with with the world. But we we are not looking. We're not looking where we're supposed to be looking.
0: And we're kind of conditioned from childhood. You know, my um, interpretation of a drug user was a heroin addict lives under a bridge, goes out stealing, thieving. And I did watch this TED talk where it showed all these pictures of these kids, girls who'd gone missing. And, you know, the whole audience was like oohing and aahing and say how can we help them? And then in the same talk, she showed mugshots of these women who'd been stealing and doing sex work and drug addiction. And Mm. the audience was repulsed thinking, you know, these are all criminals. And then she says, guess what? Yeah. They're the same people.
1: This is exactly it, isn't it? Yeah. This is when we... we
0: Hatred of sex workers and, and all. Yeah.
1: But also when we look at um, child sexual abuse victims, survivors, whatever you want to call us, um, they, they look at us as an adult. Um, and it's like, if you was to put up, like a dis- let's say we did a display in Liverpool of hundreds and thousands of kid pictures with their stories behind them, you're going to have emotional reaction. Right. Yeah. But when I'm sitting here talking, you're looking at me as an adult. You're not looking at me as that that one that if you now was to Google me, you'd see the picture that I was talking about. And then you'll be, oh, my God. So this is the other issue, because survivors and victims don't speak out as children. They speak out as adults. So when we're even reading the newspapers or the, the articles about pedophiles and sex offenders, you're not getting their emotional Connection to it's a child because you might see my for example, my story in the press, and going, oh, but she's an adult.
0: But you are such a good speaker, and you—I mean, I've never had all my blood leave my body, and I, I, literally, <laughs> I literally turned into an icicle.
1: I know, I did. I do not know people just because I've, I've never had that happen before
0: in my life, and I've, I'm desensitized. I've been through a lot.
1: <laughs> but you you are, you are
0: powerful. You are a powerful Thank speaker, you. and I'm sure the people watching this are just on the edge of their seats thinking what an amazing warrior spirit you've got to Mm. go through this. And just the way you, you, you took it head on and you insisted on looking at the evidence and you insisted on going to the media. You just took it to the next level Mm. of bravery where some people would be just like, I just want to get this behind me. I don't want to think about it. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. And to go out there now and to be the spearhead, to be the face, to be campaigning, to get these things passed. So, we're going to put all your links in the description box below the video. Yeah. How can people help you? What what What's ongoing now for you? I
1: think ongoing, actually, Sean, is trying to get more, just more support, just more movement, just more emotional connection. Like you said, you know, you, you, you don't see, I don't know, you just don't see anything. You, you just hear about the paedophiles, hear about the paedophiles, hear about the paedophiles. Until in the end... You don't even care about the paedophile anymore. You're just sick of hearing about mm. him. So I don't know the next step. I wish I knew. I don't know if it's more journalism, you know, journalism going into that. Like you said, like the sex workers having more interviews and actually getting their backstories and knowing more about it and getting more out there on that level because I'm sick of opening a newspaper and reading about a paedophile. I'm fed up with it. Absolutely fed up with it. So we become desensitised and immune to it so i don 't know what the next step is i 'd love to hear from people you know as well also where do we go from here
0: So with our mission then and to end the war on drugs and, and put the resources into going off the predators, it was the American public mm. that 've got weed decriminalized and legalized that 's the, that's the people they 're sick of their kids yeah. getting pulled over by the cops, thrown in prisons where they become heroin users and neo just for, just for weed possession, which was the highest arrest category under the war on drugs it was almost a million arrests a year for weed possession. Mm. The American public is sick of that, so they have forced the government at the state level to reverse those laws. Now we know all politicians care about is votes. Yeah. So for years, politicians had to be tough on crime. You know, lock people up for weed. This is financing narco-terrorism. You know, from Reagan onwards, they've all even though they've done coke and they've done weed, all these politicians Mm -hmm. they've had to pretend this is heinous. Throw the throw the you know throw people away, lock, lock 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 the key up and stuff. So pressure has got to be put on politicians they've got to realize they're going to lose votes if they keep letting these sick bastards out of prison mm. after only a couple of years it, 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 they've got to lose votes and if we they have keep to stop
1: uh, desensitizing people towards pedophilia yeah because i'm sorry there's a propaganda you know, there's an agenda behind it. The fact that, you know, is it actually media just news reporting the local, paedoph- you know, the paedophilia? Because actually we're becoming very immune to it. We, we don't even, it. you know, like once upon a time, if you'd heard a story about a paedophile, you probably would have been absolutely sickened and outraged and disgusted. Now you're just like, another one.
0: Yeah. It's just another one. It's just an epidemic.
1: Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like I said, I don't know if that's coming from the fact that you know when we speak about it, it's so shocking and we're the ones that walk around with the stigma and the shame and they're just walking around with their faces sprawled all over the papers and they don't give a damn.
0: But look at the cost of society then of this. I mean, if politicians care about the taxpayers' resources one bit, that kid then who suffers that abuse, who gets into criminality some of them I've interviewed on this channel, Mm. and that criminality has been big time, and it's stemmed from...
1: Abuse.
0: And that criminality has cost society an absolute fortune, Mm. housing these people in prison then, you know, £60,000 a year or whatever it is, has cost the taxpayers an absolute fortune. And then... It's just, the effects just spread out like this. It's massive. It's a massive issue on society. You've got one predator. with Some of them have hundreds of victims. Yeah. So that's costing like probably like tens of millions. When that could have been stopped by chemical castration chemical or a life castration. sentence.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's it. Talking to you today. That's it. We're going to have to start campaigning yeah. for these things.
1: Yeah. And we need more people behind it. Because like I said, you know, 221 signatures on a petition.
0: <sighs> Pathetic.
1: And is that because people are just... They're scared to get involved in it or they are desensitised from it. I don't know.
0: And I think from what you're pointing out, it's the darkness. They're looking yeah. at the darkness. It makes them feel ill. They walk away from it.
1: Yeah. Or maybe they're looking at you now as an adult and not as a child. Yeah. Because I'm sure if you was to interview for, uh, you know, a six or seven or eight, nine-year-old, it would be a completely different story. The whole world <gasps> would be in uproar.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah,
1: um, Because we're, we're not getting, like you said, it's, there's something missing. There's something missing when it comes to child sexual abuse. Um, You know, and I'm not, like I said, I'd never devalue anybody's abuse or what everybody's suffered from. You know, I work with everybody from all forms of trauma. But for some, there's there's, child sexual abuse is just not on the agenda. Child sexual exploitation and trafficking and um, domestic violence, it's all there, it's all out there. And then this CSA just sort of sits there with maybe a little push every now and then yeah and i think to myself why is that
0: are you connected with any other people then who are campaigning for this
1: not really um there was a few people that have been out and, and you know worked really hard and we just don't get anywhere with child sexual abuse and especially sean uh, with family So what they call familial um child sexual abuse you know we've got these pushes on grooming gangs and you know the, the rapes and the exploitation
0: yeah we've had Maggie Oliver on with the grooming yeah Maggie gangs. O- Oliver with the grooming what about John Wedger have you ever connected with him
1: I've spoken to John Wedger yeah he's done yeah. some good work Yeah, um, but it's like the family side of things you know, and we had that big push on the um, with the religious um abuse you know, child sexual abuse, but like you said, with the the priests and the Catholics and all of that, and we've had the institutional abuse, but why are we not addressing your father and your mother and your brother and well, your sister? It most
0: commonly is somebody that you yeah. know, a family member, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, or your uncle.
0: And they say also out of all the drugs, alcohol is the number one that's involved in all sex crimes. Yeah. Was did alcohol play its role in your case?
1: No, the drugs.
0: It was just pure drugs. Yeah. Okay. So what social media are you active on? We're going to put all the links in the description box.
1: So social media, very active on Facebook and Instagram. A little bit on LinkedIn and, and Twitter. And I've just started my youtube i just need to push my youtube out there so i've just started doing my youtube oh, for my, me, for my go, story this is
0: gonna push it out uh, good because <laughs> yeah, yeah. i've
1: been focusing before on my youtube of just like my trauma work but now i've started to become talking about my my story yeah. so i've got like a, a a playlist for my story so people can get into that because again it takes it takes a long time to actually even use the word child sexual abuse because you wait for the shock reaction <laughs> you wait for the person to go you know?
0: I'm going to urge people to subscribe to your channel. I'm going to make sure that's near the top of the description box because you are an absolute warrior <laughs> at the forefront <laughs> of this. Yeah. And we need to, you know, yes. Um, so are there any campaigns you need people to sign anything for right now or is that done?
1: That's done. We're just waiting now. I'm waiting very patiently to find out if the child victim um, refuge, like the, the what I I'd, I'd thought, is just going to be scrapped. And then if that is, I'm going to go back on a push of that um and get get that back out there because i you know until we actually start making it a conversation for children to feel like that secret and that silence you know can be helped you're not going to get children talking about it you're never going to get children talking about it and until you know and then we need more push on you know working with you know i keep going on about schools and working with trauma-informed information, you know. PTSD, we associate it with war veteran. The most common is child sexual abuse and sexual violence, that people are suffering with PTSD. And yet we we use the word PTSD and we're thinking back, you know, war veterans. We should be using PTSD and thinking child sexual abuse, um, rape, you know, and that kind of trauma. So we need to be, you know, again, opening all organisations and all schools into trauma-informed and not trauma-informed from just mental health and stress, trauma-informed from child sexual abuse, or sexual violence and, you know, no longer trying to cover the words up and, and say it quietly, So, can we talk about child sexual abuse today, you know? No, yeah. can we talk about child sexual abuse? Can we use the words vagina and penis to our children so that they understand if they do need to disclose that they're not saying down there. My uncle touched me down there. No, my uncle touched my penis. My uncle touched my vagina. You know, we we. I don't know whether it's a very English thing <laughs> where we like to say... English
0: reservedness.
1: Yeah, I'm yeah. not sure, you know, where we, we try to be like... <laughs> don't say that. But we have to, we have to.
0: So do you want me to connect you with other big podcasters? Would you want to keep that'd telling your story and reaching, mm. you know, getting this to be a bigger audience?
1: Yeah, be brilliant. You
0: talked about, you know, doing the push. For you to do your push, you obviously you need resources. Yeah. Do you have like a donation uh, thing set up in any way? Yep.
1: Yeah, do on my website. So on my website, we, we we've been taking the donations. That's how we got a push for. The Is it like a GoFundMe job. or
0: anything like that? What, what?
1: We did have a GoFundMe, but we stopped that when we when the the campaign actually went in for the petition. So now it's because um, I run um, a free monthly child sexual abuse um, women's circle support group. So I'm doing a lot of that for free. And um, so every now and then we will get donations from organisations that have heard about us and say, right, put that towards, you know, the free support groups that we, we provide. Because the problem is, you know, when we've got a topic like child sexual abuse, you, you, you can't go charging. in you know, you can't go charging people to provide therapy. You know, I told you about some of the kids that I'm working with in schools at the moment and I'm offering them free free support and free therapy because we we just cannot, we're just not in a position um, where the fact that there is no government push to address these issues, to be expecting family members to to get their kids help or to get their kids support or for people to start speaking out, you know, we've got to be out there on the ground doing it ourselves.
0: So the link on your website then, is that like a PayPal thing or how how do people donate for your website? Yeah,
1: it just go through um, through PayPal. It's a PayPal yeah. thing. We've got okay. the GoFundMe, but we've closed that down at the moment just because we're waiting to find out how much we're going to need on the push if we, if the child victim... You might want to reopen that because what yeah. i found is
0: the more options people have to donate, yeah. the better because some might say, oh, I don't want to do PayPal. Yeah, well, and I, I just do-
1: don't like taking donations. That's my problem.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but people could see you're a genuine
1: that's my problem because I'm like it's all right. I'll just get on with it people can see what a genuine soul you are I do it because I love it
0: some people are going to want to do it the same when I run the 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 (laughs) the monthly
1: um, group for the women's circle and obviously they can book through Eventbrite on the you know on the ticket list so if there's anybody that's you know is actually triggered or, or feeling like they need to speak out because they've come across this and they're like, oh, I've been through that. We do run that, you know, monthly support group. You could book through Eventbrite. And everyone keeps saying to me, you need to put it as donations. donation. Stop putting it as free. Just put it as a donation. And I'm like, no, I can't. But I, I will be changing that too because, yeah, you know, people that get that support actually want to give. They genuinely want to give. People watching
0: this are going to one second. I, yeah. say, I want to. Yeah, they yeah. do
1: like to give because, you know, it's, it's, it's just one of those subjects I remember when I first spoke out and we had a lovely organ um, company over in Wales and they came and gave us a nice big check um you know and it was just things like that because yeah. it, it just like you said it can, it can touch the hearts but for me it's actually about trying to get more grassroots and I'm not like we can do some work to that maybe Sean together it's like how do we get more grassroots on this subject
0: yeah yeah yeah. Well, I, w- I would love to get you back on. I-, I can just feel the blood coming back into my body right now. <laughs> it was like a vampire <laughs> entered the room and just, I think perhaps it was the evil spirit of this bastard. I know. Uh, I know. I'd
1: this- be talking about Ooh, that, that yeah. weirdness that went on yeah. for years where I wasn't spiritually connected and now I'm spiritually connected. Now I'm like, wow, there, there was so much like that, that was signs and I never saw them.
0: <laughs> so we're almost at three hours. No. Yeah. How, how long did you think you'd been speaking for? About an hour. Yeah, it goes fast, doesn't it? Uh,
1: but that's how what I had planned in my head. I was yeah. on, on my drive up here, I was like, right, one hour.
0: Yeah.
1: One hour is sure <laughs> will sure will be enough. Wow.
0: What do you want to say in conclusion then to the people watching this?
1: Well, like I said, first of all, thank you for even watching it if you're going to be watching it. And um, please just make us more normal, honestly. I, I, that's the only thing at the moment I want. I want to push out there is, you know... We have to break this. As we grow up as children, believing we are dirty, we are shameful, we are disgusting, and we have a secret that, you know, all the campaigns that you'll see is like a kid covering their mouth on child sexual abuse, silence. You know, you'll see all of that. So that is, that is genuinely how we feel. Very dirty, very shameful that we don't deserve to have husbands and kids and families and lives, you know. And I think the more that we can, yeah, gather together, get more victims who are ready to talk out, to speak out, to build that movement, that is literally what people need to be helping us with. Because that is what's going to make the difference between paedophiles being as confident to do what they do. And I truly, like I said, when I said to my, I I forgot to say it to you, I said to the police officer, did he want to be caught? That's what I said. I said, he must have wanted to be caught because he left it all around. And she said, no, over years, he was confident he would never be caught.
0: Wow. What a powerful story and what a powerful way to end this. I mean, this has got to be one of the most um, emotional and spine chilling podcasts we've ever done. And May, you're just so absolutely brave. I just can imagine the people watching this, how they feel right now. So please go down at the very least subscribe to maya's channel you know uh otherwise check her links out there's going to be ways to contact her and you can always chip in making a donation on the website so if you've managed to stick around and watch this whole thing you know power to you um i hope you sleep okay tonight and um huge thank you to all the new subscribers subscription logos in the bottom corner of the screen And huge thank you to everyone who's supporting our channel mission, because it is just raising the awareness to the public of these things that society doesn't want to look at, that is going to cause enough people eventually to rise up and force these plastic-faced puppet politicians to be scared finally if they don't make some changes, they're going to lose some votes, because that's... The bottom line, I think, when it comes to government policy. And so all the you people working in the system, and people approach me and come up and say, Look, I am in the system, totally agree with you, but I'm I'm trapped, I can't make these changes. You people in the system have got to step up and lobby your bosses and say, you know, I joined to do this work because of these reasons, and yet I'm getting told to do these other things that I don't think. You know, my heart is telling me this is the right direction we should be going in here. And if enough of you in the system can affect changes with, from within, yeah. that is a way we can expand our mission as well. So, oh my goodness, what, what, what a bloody journey! Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Oh yeah. Brilliant. Thanks, Absolutely brilliant.